guys, Comic Boom here on behalf of both myself and Jace of the Comic Source Podcast. Jace is presently, uh, unfortunately, he's he's working at the moment. He's got other duties. He may be joining us later. He may not. It depends. Uh, work pending. So for this week of January 24th, 2023, we got a, a, approximately 14 comics to review. Jace may or may not be joining us, but every now and then that happens where Jace will be doing it by himself or I'll be doing it by myself uh, simply because uh, it's just the way it is. You know, we we, ha we have li lives outside of uh, reviewing these uh, comic books and sometimes uh, sometimes other things take precedent. So uh, having said that, uh, this is uh, quite an interesting, uh, quite an interesting week. Uh, we got the uh, premier issue of uh, Action Comics 1051. And uh, we have uh, we have the continuing uh, story of uh, Lazarus Planet. We, we once were gods, and I I was really looking forward to reading the Human Target. And we've got a, a another chapter of Batman One Bad Day. And so overall, I thought this week was I again the vast majority of the comics this week I personally found to be a little bit underwhelming. Uh, so again, there's only re really about three or four that I liked. One of them being uh, Justice Society of America again. I don't mind Action Comics 1051. I'm, I'm always loving Human Target uh, because I just, I love the, the story Tom King's uh, s telling in conjunction with Greg Smallwood's amazing art. But there's definitely uh, some disappointments, the least of which is Lazarus Planet. And, um, well, some of the other ones, which I'll get to. So again, Jace might be joining us, but without further ado, let's hop right into the first one that we're going to be reviewing. And that is Batman, one bad day, Catwoman number one, written by Jay Willow Wilson. And, uh, some beautiful, beautiful cover here. Uh, I'm going to, uh, screen share here, uh, Beautiful covers for this bat for all the Batman One Bad Day. It looks as if DC is likely going to be collecting all of them in a slipcase edition, and they're even given all of these One Bad Day issues. Uh, they're they're actually making them all individual hard covers, which I think I think is very curious. I I question whether or not the stories are of a quality that requires that degree of prestige hardcover format. Although I really do love Tom King's One Bad Day, but you know, I mean, I might be in the minority on that because that that was a sort of a divisive story. None of these one bad day stories have really been perceived. I think uh, none of them have have been widely critically acclaimed. Quite frankly, uh, even though I really enjoyed Tom King's One Bad Day, I'm just talking anecdotally. I might be in the minority on that, but I really enjoyed it, and I like the Penguin One Bad Day story. And I actually don't mind this Catwoman One Bad Day story, even though it doesn't really follow the narrative. The, the, the One Bad Day storyline is sort of loosely based on a killing joke, uh, that story, that famous story of Alan Moore. The idea being that, you know, what, what's, you know, it, it ends arguably with the Joker being killed by the Batman, but it, it's sort of left up in the air. But it's it's the worst day that the Joker may have had. Uh, and maybe arguably one of the worst days Batman has in conjunction with the individual villains. And none of the stories have consistently lined up necessarily with that theme. Although, so I'm not really sure, in particular this one, Batman One Bad Day, Catwoman number one. I'm not really sure how this is Catwoman's One Bad Day. 
But I actually don't mind the story by Jay Willow Wilson. Jay Willow Wilson has been sort of hit and miss with me. I didn't, you know, her Wonder Woman has been, was a little bit disappointing, but was substantially better than Wonder Woman the way Wonder Woman's written now. And I'm hoping Jay Willow Wilson's influence on Wonder Woman uh, in the ongoing Wonder Woman series, she's going to be uh, contributing her scripting talents along with the Clunrads who need the help, frankly, uh, with respect to uh, Wonder Woman and Lazarus Planet, uh, Revenge of the Gods. So w- Jay Willow Wilson will be lending her scripting ability there. J. Willow Wilson here scripts an interesting tale for Catwoman. I want to give a shout out to Brian Boland's amazing uh, uh, variant cover. I think this is a 1 in 25 ratio. It looks amazing. It shows, uh, for those listening, it's it's Brian Boland's unique artistic style uh, of Catwoman looking absolutely gorgeous with the big cat-like nails hanging on to uh, Batman's cowl and cape and looking pretty sexy with black lipstick on, smiling devilishly, looking toward the uh, the, the reader. Looks up absolutely amazing. I wish it wasn't a 1 in 25 ratio because that means it's it's going to be too expensive for me to, to, to buy. Uh, my particular philosophy with comic books is that I don't, I don't spend more than cover price for a cover. I'm not going to spend $25 for a cover or $50 for a cover. I would rather buy another two or three or four comic books because that's just the way I am because I personally read them. I like to read comic books. Uh, if I if I want art, I can buy a cover. I can buy a... I can buy a book filled with covers or images or I can download I can download an image and stare at it like I'm doing right now. So, in any event... The story itself about of uh, Batman, One Bad Day, Catwoman, again, scripted by J. Willow Wilson. Jamie McKelvey does the art and co- colors. Clayton Cowles on the lettering and Jamie McKelvey on the cover. And this this is an interesting story in, in so far as, well, let me back up here. Is it really an interesting story? It's called No Small Scores. And essentially, the story can be encapsulated like this. This is, it shows a flashback sequence where Selena Kyle's mother, Selena and Selena's sister, Maggie, when they were young, their mother went to a pawn shop and, and they were, her mother was desperate for rent money. And her mother took, uh, took, a, a, took a piece of an of jewelry to a pawn shop and basically pawned it off because her her mother told her it was valuable but the guy at the pawn shop only gave her you know only gave her uh $200 uh which was barely enough to cover rent for this uh, item of jewelry which is uh, a 14 uh, 14 karat gold setting jade and tourmaline three stones are nice but this ain't a this ain't a carnot the setting's all wrong and so this this guy this guy at the pawn shop you know, you're not sure if he's ripping them off, ripping Selena Kyle's mother off. But this is when Selena and her sister Maggie were very young. And you get the sense that maybe Selena Kyle's mother is being ripped off uh, with this expensive item of jewelry. Flash forward to the future and an older Selena Kyle is at a museum and she's checking out the museum where this item of jewelry is going for sale of course, a couple of decades later. And of course, Selena Kyle wants to steal this trinket, this item of jewelry for herself because in her mind, she's taking it back because she feels her mother was ripped off. And it's it's Selena Kyle where, and this is where J. Willow Wilson, I think I think succeeds in, in, the, in the heart and soul of this story. It's a story about Selena putting a lot of stock and feeling and emotion 
tied up in an item in, in a trinket of jewelry. And for Selena Kyle, it was important for her to steal this jewelry back almost as a sort of a desperate sort of emotional way of getting back her childhood, of, of redeeming a wrong that was done to her mother, that, that basically it was essentially stolen by this pawn shop guy by underpaying for it. She's stealing it back almost as a way of sort of like desperately trying to right a wrong that occurred in Selena's past. And, and in the, in the process of, of casing the, casing the museum, I guess, she comes across this, uh, one of the, uh, what she, she believes to be a worker at the museum who ends up being an older, who ends up being a villain by the name of, of the forger, who is a lot like Catwoman, but is an older Catwoman, sort of an older lady with gray pink hair and a pink suit. And she's, uh, she's like Selena, but she's just older. She's not a killer. She's just a thief. And she's, well, she goes by the name of the forger and she does exactly what her name suggests. She forges documents. That's what the, she forges items and she basically sells them off into the, into the black market. And that's what this forger does. And my apologies. I'm going to be drinking as I um, talk this. One of the disadvantages of Chase being gone is uh, I have to do all the talking. But in any event, where this is uh, this this particular, as with all the one bad day stories, this is this is essentially seventy pages long, so or maybe sixty eight, sixty nine pages long, and frankly, this is more of a this, this story. Not a lot happens. There's there's not a lot of violence here. This is just basically of Selena stealing an item of she steals this attempts to steal this this item this this jewel this jewel or this item of jewelry this butterfly jewelry or whatever the hell it is I I wish they had a better name for it here they don't really give it a specific name I I think but it's just some jewelry or trinket and it ends up that the forger already stole it and replaced it with a forgery so she ends up with a conflict with this forger and then she runs into Batman. And then Batman is polite enough to sort of say, is to, is to warn Selena and say, Selena, by the way, you know, this, um, this forger person is, uh, you should be careful. She's, uh, you know, she knows what she's doing. She's very experienced. And Batman doesn't, he, he stays out of Catwoman's way. This is once again, there seems to be a new Bible at DC regarding the writing of Batman. This Batman is the type of Batman, he lets Selena do whatever she wants. He's not going to step on her toes, even though she's committing a theft. Theft. It's okay if you steal, Selena, but somebody else like the Forger, no, I got to take them down. But don't worry, Selena, because I'm sleeping with you, you can do whatever you want. There's a strong sense of that here. And this is one of the re this is one of the ways that you know I understand that there's always that sexual uh, tension and and interplay between Batman and Selena, but the way that that, that Batman sort of like he's stepping aside because he's going to let Selena confront this forger. I mean, Batman has done all this research. He 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 wants Selena not to confront the forger because he's putting together a case so that forger can actually do time and be sent to jail. Now, frankly, Batman should be doing that to Catwoman all the time but that hypocrisy okay we're gonna let that go as readers because we love the bat cat scenario that's all well and good but batman once again let's let's selena call get away with just straight up crime here and for no other reason that this is pure sex that's really what this is they're in love he's in love and so she gets a free pass because of because of sex because of love and of course i suppose that possesses a high degree of verisimilitude because let's face it 
We're all hypocrites when it comes to doing the right thing versus sleeping with women, men, whatever floats your boat, right? That's just the way it is. And Batman is an absolute hypocrite, and Catwoman certainly is. And besides, Catwoman's got Batman wrapped around her finger. In any event, this basically concludes the Forger gets away. She defeats Catwoman somewhat handily. She seems to be a superior hand-to-hand combatant, uh, despite being an, an older lady. And uh, she's actually quite adept. And she headbutts Catwoman because Catwoman underestimates her, despite being warned by Batman. Batman steps into the scene at the end, says, I told you, you know. And, of course, Catwoman gets a black eye. And earlier in the story, uh, Selina calls her, her sister Maggie and said, Maggie, guess what? Remember that item of jewelry that mom pawned back in the day and couldn't afford rent and blah, 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 blah. Maggie says, yeah, what of it? And she tells Maggie that she's going to steal it. And Maggie doesn't care. And, and Maggie is actually kind of upset saying, you know, why are you doing this? Like, it's, it's a piece of jewelry. Why, how, is it, how does it help our lives now getting it back? What's the purpose of that? And basically the moral of this story is nothing has any value and uh, nothing has any value but for the value that you give it. So it was Selena that gave, that in her mind, gave this trinket, gave this particular item of jewelry. She gave it so signif- so much significance herself. And yet it didn't, it's just a trinket of jewelry. And yet it meant something to Selena. Yet incredibly enough, ironically enough, it didn't mean anything to Maggie. Because for Maggie, the important thing was her memories of her mother and maybe other things that which aren't really elaborated upon. But writer J. Willow Wilson allows the reader to sort of maybe fill in those blanks. And the more and the lesson is quite clear. And the reason why this story impacted me a little bit is my dad died about he died about a year and a half ago. And 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 ironically enough, uh, or I, significantly enough, uh, we reached a point where my, myself and my two siblings, we we sat down, we were dividing my dad's jewelry, and, and, and we did that. And it was very interesting that what I, the, the, the items of personal adornment that my dad had, uh, watch, ring, watch, et cetera, et cetera, I, I put more value on some things, and my brother put a value on something else, and my sister put a value on something else. And I kid you not, we all had our heart set on something different and it worked out just wonderfully and it's just goes to show you that any nothing has any value but the value that you give it and that's really what the the lesson of this uh, of this story is here and in that respect it worked did it drag on yes do i think it needed to be 70 pages or 60 some odd pages i think it did drag on but this is a good story it is a good self-contained story we we have a new character i believe this character is new the forger Expect to see her again. She's an older uh, Catwoman-like character. So, And I think Jay Willow Wilson did a good job here. There was some decent character work, good character work between Selina and Batman. I think Batman is a little bit emasculated. He's been emasculated more than once. They're lightening up Batman. They're making him more of a family man. They're making him more sort of a tool of Selina from time to time. He gives in quite a bit more for sex and uh, the, the sexual politics in the relationship between men and women. So in that respect, maybe it's more it's more of a realistic Batman, but this isn't a dark, grim, and dirty Batman, or grim and dirty. <laughs> it's He's dirty, but he's not grim and gritty anymore. He's kind of, he's a little bit emasculated, and he's a little bit more easygoing about what Selena can get away with. A lot like a lot of us guys who want to stay married and happy. Hey, happy life, happy wife, happy life. Yeah, you, you nod your head. If your wife wants something, you just nod your head. A girl you love wants something, you just nod her head and let her get away with it. That's what happens here. But in any event, not a bad story. Uh, you know, again, mileage will vary. I'm really curious to know what you guys might think about this, about this story. I think it's, uh, 
I actually enjoy this more. It's one of the better ones of the One Bad Day. So far, I've enjoyed my personal favorites are the, the Tom King Riddler story, which is my favorite. And uh, the Riddler story, I didn't mind. And this this one as well, I don't mind as well. I like, I like when it has a little bit of a theme and a moral to it. And that's what this has. And so it's not bad. Now... The next, uh, the next issue that we are going to review is Tim Drake Robin. Now, uh, this is, uh, now, I, I want to, uh, Jace isn't here to review this. I'm almost tempted to put it near the end. But uh, in fairness, I know that uh, Jace is, has, been more, has been more kind to Tim Drake Robin. And so I will try to articulate, I know his, his view of Tim Drake Robin is that there's he likes the approach that uh, Fitz Martin has taken with respect to Tim Drake, and in terms of Tim Drake trying to find himself by feeling a little bit lost. So he gets he lives out by the marina, and he's uh, he's exploring his relationship with Bernard, having recently come to terms with his sex his his bisexuality. He's got you know he's he's uh, he's uh, in love with Bernard, and but Bernard doesn't know that he's really Robin, and so. In this issue, it comes to a hilt. Now, I'm I'm still not a fan of this series, and I don't like the direction it's taken. But I wanna I wanna at least I wanna at least uh, at least make some token attempt to be objective about what what this story has done, and what Fitzmartin Megan Fitzmartin has done here is that she actually has Tim Drake in this particular issue state point blank that. He's frustrated and that he's he's questioning whether he he tells Nightwing at what point at the beginning of this story. He tells Nightwing because they're looking for Bernard and they're looking for this villain who ultimately ends up being named. The, the villain's name is Moriarty, you know, and they're looking for they're looking for Bernard. And Tim is so frustrated saying, I should I what am I doing thinking I could just be a civilian as well? What am I doing thinking I, I, I shouldn't have moved to the marina being a civilian, got a boyfriend. I, I and I and now he, he he doesn't even know that I'm really Robin. And I feel like I'm deceiving him. And now he's, he's been kidnapped and his life is in danger from this person. And and I can't solve I can't put the clues together to solve this this mystery. And he's he's very, very, very frustrated, to say the very least. And what ends up happening is as uh, Tim and Nightwing and they're looking for they're looking for for uh, Bernard, and uh, you know oddly enough Bernard is uh, Bernard is he he's found ultimately by Sparrow because Tim Drake has a sidekick now named Sparrow. Tim Drake is found actually by the Marina. So apparently Tim Drake claims that he 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 looked over all of Gotham. Tim Drake can't believe that he he actually apparently jumped from building to building all over Gotham twice and couldn't find Bernard as if somehow this is supposed to be shocking. Like, you know, hopping from building to building, swinging from building to building, Tim, and you, you're surprised that you can't find Bernard. I mean, literally, Bernard, he could hide from you for five years. You'd never be able to find him. I, I don't know why he... And, the, and he literally has no clues to go on. And But in any event... Um, I've had a hard time from the beginning of this series sort of trying to make sense of exactly what the, what's been going on. Uh, I don't really understand what all these clues are, but uh, apparently this individual has been um, uh, the, the, this bad guy behind the scenes who we find out at the end of the issue is Moriarty has basically created these discs that somehow create constructs which is revealed in this issue to be made out of salt. And these constructs are 
at, at one point he, uh, Tim at some point in this issue finds out that as he's fighting these constructs, he sees various symbols appear. And one of these symbols means phosphorus and the other symbol means salt. And because of that, he, uh, he, in the battle with this, he, he hallucinates and he sees, he sees what these constructs want him to see. And these constructs are apparently made out of salt. And so he figures that the best way to deal with these salt, these constructs made out of salt, is to dump acid on it because acid dissolves salt. Which I don't, I didn't think, apparently, uh, Tim Drake is not particularly intelligent because water also dissolves salt. You can pour water on salt. I mean, you, you could have a, I, I've actually, I can prove this. You can take a salt statue and pour water on it and it will dissolve. But uh, albeit uh, acid would be better. And so if you can believe this, this is where this gets absurd. He, he dumps, he looks for anything with salt. So Tim, Tim is fighting this, this person. Uh, Batwoman tells him it can't be Clayface. So this person is, is apparently, it's not made out of clay. This person's something else. But this person is throwing a bunch of uh, hallucinations or real life constructs at him made out of salt that are created through this white floating discs. I, I, I don't understand it. And he dumps a barrel of acid on him. And then he looks for apples and oranges, anything with salt. I'm not making this stuff up. And he actually, then he goes to this, his boat on the marina, takes out the battery that powers the boat and the engine. And he dumps the battery acid on one of the elephant salt, elephant creatures made out of salt. Uh, and then he's at wit's end. And what does he do? He decides that the best way to, because the only, we're, we're, he's being attacked by this giant fish made out of salt. Again, I'm not making this up. And what does he do? He decides to puke on this fish. I'm not making this up. Guys, this has got to be the first time ever uh, in, in, any, in any battle where I've seen a superhero defeat the villain by puking on them. That's what Tim Drake does. He, he forces himself, he shoves two fingers into his mouth, and he forces himself to puke all over this flying salt fish that comes toward him, and it dissolves the fish. I'm not making this up. This is, when, I, when I read this, I, it was absolutely laughable. And then he says, his first words after he pukes all over this fish, defeating his enemy, he actually says, he actually says to, um, he says to the villain who ends up being Moriarty, saying, "You're no match for me. I may not have been I may not have been raised by Batman, but I was trained by him." So suggesting that apparently Batman trained Tim Drake how to puke all over a bad guy. I'm not kidding you. And then he exclaims, "Where is Bernard?" He demands to know where Bernard is. And of course, I mean, I mean, what else do you say after you puke all over the bad guy, right? Or the, the fish. And then, and then this bad guy appears and says, I am your match in every way for I am Moriarty. And that's how it ends. And so, um, I got to tell you, I, I was actually laughing as I, as I read this before, but you know, it's, it's comical. Now, I don't know if it's intended to be as funny as it actually comes across. I, I really did find this to be a, a very funny, a very funny um, comic because it, it was almost, frankly, a little bit absurd. But it is what it is. Now, having said that, uh, some benefits. Uh, I actually, I didn't mind Riley Rosmo's art. 
I think it, I think it actually, I could figure out what was going on. I thought it was comical <laughs> or I'm, I'm assuming it's Riley Rosmo's art. Maybe I should, maybe I should just double check that. I got to, uh, is it? Yes. Riley Rosmo did the art on pages one to five and page 22 and Ricardo Lopez Ortiz does the art on pages six to 21 and the cover. So there's a combination of both, but I, I think that, I think uh, Ortiz does a good job sort of, you know, sort of melding his artistic sensibilities with Rosmo. So there's some artistic consistency here. And I, I thought it was, it, it was entertaining enough. And I understood what was going on, on enough to laugh and get a kick out of it. I still think this is a really kind of a, kind of a really, this, this villain, this Moriarty, the detective work involved here is, I don't know how any, how connecting these dots makes any kind of sense at all. It's, it's just, it's absolute nonsense how all this stuff is connected. I mean, I don't, I still, for the life of me, I don't understand how Moriarty created literally flying white discs that had symbols of the salt and symbols of phosphorus. And then also combine that with stories and, and books. And it, it was just, it was all over the place. It didn't work for me. It still doesn't work for me. And the uh, Tim Drake's uh, really, his guilt and angst over not being able to find Bernard or ultimately Bernard is actually found. Uh, and Bernard looks like, he looks like a girl. He looks like a girl with short hair. And that's really weird. But, you know, I guess, I guess Tim Drake's bisexual and he's got a, he's got a boyfriend that, I guess apparently, at least in this instance, draws and looks exactly like a girl a little bit or or at a minimum uh, gender neutral. Uh, but I guess that is that's comic books in the in the in the present day. And it's all good. I just, um, you know, that's the character work here. And there is some character work in so far. If you've been following it so, so long and I know Jace, Jace is going to have an interview coming up with uh, Megan uh, Fitzmartin. And she's she has been trying to develop that focusing on the fact that Tim Drake is trying to find himself, basically. And I guess apparently the best way to find himself is to move out, move to the mirror, you know, not go to college, not complete college. Instead, quit, go live in a marina, you know, explore your sexuality, live in a boat, um, date a guy named Bernard and uh, not tell him who you are and just literally help a bunch of people and fly around. And, you know, he's very upset. At one point in this story, Tim Drake gets upset because he made his own costume and it doesn't fit. So he complains to Nightwing. I mean, this is what Tim Drake has become. I mean, you you might not have been raised by Batman, but is that really a bad thing? I mean, you actually had parents. You're supposed to be the most well-adjusted, and, and here you are, you're not. Or, But again, uh, the response to that is, well, he's he's struggling. He's young, he's making mistakes, and, and that's, that's the central gist of this story. So you're either with that or you're not. Uh, you guys can let me know how you feel about it in the comments below. And uh, I know Jace would be more def uh, would, will defend this story better than I have since it's not my cup of tea. So in any event, continuing on now, uh, the next uh, comic that we're going to review is Sergeant Rock versus the Army of the Dead, issue five of six. And this is the one that it's got, it's got Adolf Hitler on the cover. Yes, Adolf Hitler on the cover. And uh, this is, uh, you know, fantastic, fantastic primary cover. I've been drawn by, uh, uh, I believe that's Gary Frank on the cover. Uh, the interiors are done by Ed Eduardo Rizzo and colors by Christian Rossi. And the variant cover done by uh, Frank uh, Francisco Francavilla, which I absolutely love. I'm actually getting all the Francavilla covers because I just love them. 
It looks amazing. Uh, quite frank, quite frankly, I think Frank Avila's art on the covers is is a is a better reflection of the actual interior by uh, by Edward Rizzo. And uh, this chapter is called uh, "Wanted Hitler Dead or Alive." Bruce Campbell's the writer. This is more of the same. I just want to say one thing about this. Everyone that I know who's been reading this has basically been getting a lot of fun out of it. But because it is just a bunch of dead zombie Nazis and, and including Hitler himself is essentially sort of an undead Nazi here. And he's commanding the undead. And basically it's Sergeant Rock and Easy Company. It's their job to simply break into the headquarters where Hitler is and basically kill Hitler. And that's really what this is. This is, we know this is going to be six long issues. We're in issue five right now. And this is, uh, this is a long, this is just a long protracted World War II adventure of essentially landing in Berlin and taking out Adolf Hitler. And I got to tell you, I used to read a lot of uh, Sergeant Rock stories. I got a lot of Sergeant Rock comics. I love it. I got some of the old collected editions. And I'm quite accustomed to reading Sergeant Rock stories with the art of Joe Kubert. And so seeing Edward Rizzo drawing Sergeant Rock and Easy Company, it's just a joy because he, he really is good at, at drawing the visceral, violent aspects of World War II. And as I said, is a pretty good reflection of... Um, uh, of Francisco Francavilla's art uh, on the variant covers. And, you know, but, you know, I got to say that this is one of those stories that probably could have told, been told in one issue or two issues. Because all this is, is they're, they're just, it's just Sergeant Rock and Easy Company going and killing a bunch of dead zombies for literally four or five issues now. And now we're at the fifth issue and it's more of the same, except in this issue, they finally get to Adolf Hitler and, you know, the, Hitler's secretary attacks him, he's undead, and they stab Hitler through the mouth. That's kind of really it. There is no real big battle with Hitler here. Well, no, I, I should say that. <laughs> I mean, I guess there is, but when, when Hitler is stabbed in the mouth, it should have been a full-page spread of Hitler being stabbed literally from through both cheeks with a big knife by, I think it was by bulldozer there. And uh, I, I would have liked to have seen that. So I was actually a little bit disappointed in that. And this is kind of more of the same. So this this does feel like a decompressed story to me. I don't mind it. This is going to sell well as a trade because it's Bruce Campbell's having a lot of fun here, and it shows. Uh, I'm just I just want to be clear here that um, th this is not above being criticized uh, as, as a story because there's there's a lot of decompression here, and I think that there could be more character work of the individual soldiers for Sergeant Rock of Easy Company. Uh, because there, there isn't, there, there's a lot, there's, there's more action than there is character work and there should be more character work because you've got plenty of time to do that over six issues, but instead we just get a lot of blood and guts and that's all well and good. I don't mind that. I love, you know, I mean, it, it is, it is Sergeant Rock versus the army of the dead after all, but I mean, it is possible to have the best of both worlds. I would just suggest that what we're getting more of in this particular world is just plain action and zombies fighting Sergeant Rock of Easy Company, which I love. But if you go into this, just remember that this is basically just one long base, one long action sequence of Sergeant Rock battling the undead. And after a while, by the fifth issue, it kind of gets a little bit tiresome. You know, I want. I would like a. I would like to have had a little bit more sophistication in the plot, other than just the occasional. Uh, 
the occasional conversation where Sergeant Rock and, and Easy Company are being given more sophisticated weapons to fight the undead, which they don't need anyway, because all they really need is knives, knives and, a, and, and, a, and bullets anyway, which will do the job. But in any event, it's not bad. And if you're, I've been with it so far and I love the Frankavilla covers and Gary Frank's covers are fantastic too. Uh, colors by Anderson, good stuff overall. And if you're with it this far, you're going to be continuing with it. Okay. So next one is Harley Quinn number 26. So, uh, wow, this uh, Harley Quinn number 26 continues the story of the Harley Quinn who laughs, the Harley Quinn who laughs. Just what we all wanted was the Harley Quinn who laughs, right? So essentially in this issue, uh, it continues off from last issue, obviously. And we we get two fantastic cover, uh, well, actually three covers. All of them are great. Cover A is really good, uh, and cover B, I'm 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 trying to look at the the names here. Uh, unfortunately, they don't they don't um, they really have to start uh, crediting these artists with their names printed out in each of the pages in my mind. But there's some really gorgeous. Uh, alternate covers, which I'm showing, but those of you listening on the podcast won't see it. But there's one with uh, uh, Harley Quinn uh, in... It's my favorite. It's the one where she's killed two mimes and she's bowing to the crowd, and it looks amazing. It's got a different, uh, it's got a different letterhead for Harley Quinn, a different logo for Harley Quinn. There's also an amazing Jenny Frizen cover with Harley Quinn uh, b- bathing herself in a bathtub with pink bubbles and a rubber ducky, a bright yellow rubber ducky, and she's making a kissing uh, kissing she's blowing a kiss to a rubber ducky <laughs> very sexy and provocative really gorgeous stuff the story picks up from last issue where harley quinn and old lady harley they come up with a plan they they have to stop the, the harley who laughs and the harley who laughs has a master plan that to basically kill all of the harley quinns from all the multiverse that have shown up and uh, and they're they're showing up in Earth Zero and Harley Quinn and Old Lady Harley, they have they come up with a plan with the help of Batwoman, Kevin, uh, and Kevin it, to basically th- their master plan is to is to say, well, wait a minute, why don't we kidnap all the Harleys that are here? And since we know the Harley who laughs wants to basically the Harley who laughs wants to kill all the Harleys, if we kidnap and incapacitate all the Harleys, we can set a trap and attract the Harley Quinn who, the Harley Quinn who laughs. That's exactly what they do. And the, the issue itself is literally with uh, mostly dialogue, uh, which, which quite frankly, it's, it's not bad, but it, it kind of drags on a bit. But there are some good moments between, uh, there are some interesting moments and some humorous moments between Batwoman and Harley where you know, at some point, you know, one of the Harleys puts a sticky note on the back of Batwoman that says, hit me with a mallet. And, you know, ha ha ha. There's some, you know, some, 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 you know, I guess you could say maybe small attempts at humor there that will either work for you or they won't. Whatever floats your boat. And Kevin her, Kevin himself, uh, the, sort of like the sidekick of Harley, he sort of straightens out Harley. Harley gets very frustrated. She doesn't, she kind of wants to avoid her responsibility. And, and Kevin says, no, look, man, you got to, 
you know, I, I know you've been through a lot, but it's your responsibility to stop this doppelganger of yourself from from the dark universe. You got to do this. And meanwhile, she's dealing with Zaz and and then Solomon Grundy and Killer Frost are there to help out, along with Batwoman and the old lady Harley and and Kevin himself. And they all manage to round up the Harleys. And it's one. It, there's various action sequences where they're taking out all these Harleys. And at the end, it ends up that the Harley Quinn who laughs shows up that with a, an ace up her sleeve and that ace is poison ivy one of these scenes in this issue is ivy ivy gets a lot of help but the one person that she really wants help from is is poison ivy is pamela isley because she misses she misses her girlfriend and um uh and ivy does show up at the end of the issue but as a prisoner and as a captive of the harley who laughs so now that Arguably, the playing field is leveled. Yes, Harley has Harley and her and her comrades have all these other Harleys rounded up, uh, but uh, Harley Quinn, who laughs, has Poison Ivy as a prisoner, and so it's it's a good cliffhanger. It's a good cliffhanger. I think one of the better issues in the last few in the last uh, few months, quite frankly. I enjoyed it, and uh, yeah, so it's it's nice to see. I'm not a big fan of the Dark Universe. I don't like the fact that we had the Harley Quinn who laughs here. Just like I wasn't a fan of seeing Miss Murder in the One Minute War for Flash, but uh, I have Flash. I have I have Flash. I have faith in Jeremy Adams, and Stephanie Williams has done. I, I think that uh, her Harley Quinn has been better. I, I, I've enjoyed the last few issues now, particularly with the art change in art as well, and so I've I've been enjoying it. And this has been you know this was a a better a better issue than normal. So. Now, having said that, um, the next issue is the Dead Boy Detectives. All right. Now, the Good Boy Detectives, they consist of uh, two young boys by the name of Charlie Goodwin and his friend Edwin. And they're from England and they died, uh, I think they, well, they died in the, in the early 20th century and they're basically, they've been dead for a long time and basically they go around and they, exactly like the name says, they basically solve crimes which uh, invariably involve, not surprisingly, the supernatural. Now, uh, the story so far is that the dead boy detectives have, they're basically in Los Angeles and they stumble upon other dead children or other other ghosts and the other children consists of a, of uh, children name one one of the children's name is Jay another one is Melvin and Tanya and they're basically hunting for an amulet that um, was uh, that one of the dead children who is now, now a ghost they're, they're looking for this amulet that used to belong to Tanya's parents and this amulet can apparently uh, Summon can summon the spirit that is going around killing them. And last issue, their their one of their their leaders, their teacher, by a guy, a person by the name of Dom, he was killed by this spirit. Meanwhile, so these children, it's very important to uh, Charlie and Edwin and Jay, Melvin and Tanya, for them to find this amulet and basically, you know, call forth this spirit and to stop this spirit. Now the problem, there's a number of problems that are arising here, and one of the, and to the credit of, uh, uh, I want to give a, sh I, I should say the 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 writers here, um, the writer, uh, my God, um, I always, I'm going to butcher his name here. Um, unfortunately, I, I'm trying to find here it is, uh, Pornsack Pishit Shot, 
Pishit Shoti? Porn Sack Pishit Shot. And it is the writer, and I'm just going to call him Porn Sack. And uh, Jeff Stokely. <laughs> I can't believe I feel like I'm insulting the person and I'm actually pronouncing their name correctly. Porn Sack. That's his first name. Porn Sack, you're the writer. Jeff Stokely is the artist. Craig Telefer uh, on the inks. Miguel Murto on the colors. And Hassan Otsmain Elhau on the lettering. While Pornsack here uh, scripts some decent characterization of the characters, Charlie and Edwin, they end up, a love triangle is, starts to develop here because they both have a crush on the girl, Tanya. Now, here's the problem is that Tanya is dead. Tanya died in the 90s. So she's, she's a 90s goth girl. So she wears, you know, she's got the dark eyebrows, the dark makeup, and she's dressed in black all the time and the black nylons and you know under her shirt and her leg stockings the whole nine yards and they're uh, unfortunately all these children who are dead in LA so they're like it's not just the dead boys that are dead and being the detectives there's these other dead kids Jay Melvin and Tanya are also dead too help them do this detective work well um as uh Edwin uh Charlie has a crush on Tanya but he doesn't really want to say anything. Meanwhile, Edwin and Tanya actually share a moment together as they're trying to piece together exactly how to find the spirit and deal with the, the mystery as to what's going on with with, with all the undead and, and, and why is this person going around uh, killing people and or why is this spirit doing that? And meanwhile, we have these we have these sort of undead little baby creatures going around going around that ultimately at the end of the issue end up confronting and attacking Charlie and Edwin uh, at the end. Uh, and what's what's interesting about that is that because all these children are ghosts, because Charlie and Edwin, Jay, Melvin, and Tanya are dead, they actually they're not supposed to be able to physically touch each other. But there's a moment between uh, Charlie and um, between Edwin and Tanya where they actually realize that they can physically touch, and they're not really sure why. Is it because maybe they have feelings for each other, or is there a way that feelings or love can transcend death, etc.? I don't know. I'm sure a writer Pornsack has some sort of uh, reason for that, but it's clear that you know uh, the dead boy detectives, Charlie and Edwin. They care about each other. And, you know, at one point, Charlie says to Edwin, you know, Edwin, all you've, uh, have you really never had any feelings for any girl you've ever met, not even once? Like, Charlie's trying to explain to Edwin, not realizing that Edwin's had a, already sort of had a little bit of a, sort of a quiet moment with Tanya. Not an intimate one or nothing like that. They were just holding each other, give, consoling each other. But Charlie doesn't realize that maybe Edwin's gotten to first base ahead of him. And so that that's that's a character work that's probably going to play out in future issues. In the meantime, the, the story is building and there's and Porn, Porn Sack does a good job of creating this. There's something called a ghost walk where they can uh, they can travel great distances around the world. Uh, the dead boys, Charlie and Edwin, can can actually ghost walk where they can you can they can travel over great distances in a much shorter period of time by uh, walking along the, the ghost road. They can go on ghost roads, which where people are, the, the ghosts are trapped on the road itself and the past spirits that want you, that want something from you will speak to you as you walk on the ghost road. But the ghost road, if you just ignore the spirits and go about your way, you can get to your destination real quick. So there's some different concepts that are playing with here. But overall, not bad character work. I, uh, just totally on the art. Pretty good job. Uh, this, uh, this, I enjoy this. I've I've collected Dead Boy Detectives. I haven't read a lot, 
Pardon me. What I mean to say is I've read enough Dead Boy Detectives that I enjoy this. This is in keeping with the uh, mythology of the Dead Boys. There isn't that many Dead Boy co Detective comics to begin with. Uh, but And this one is, uh, this is a nice addition to the Sandman universe. Very well done, I think. I'm enjoying it. Now, uh, the next issue that we're talking about is Catwoman issue 51. All right, uh, this is written by uh, Tini Howard, uh, with art by Sam Bezri and colors by Seth Fuentes. And we know that Catwoman, or Selena Kyle, is in prison. And we know that uh, Iko Hasegawa and uh, Dario, is as Tomcat, are basically taking over the, the Catwoman and Tomcat duties uh, for Gotham City, for, for that area of Gotham City where Selena normally patrols. Uh, but Selena needs some, she needs some protection or rather she needs, uh, she needs to, uh, she needs to set herself up in, in prison. And in order for her to do that, she needs to, uh, Selena has been to prison before and just a, a little a bit of background here. Selena Kyle is in prison because she, she killed, um, um, Ah, uh, what's the guy's name? Ah, she she killed her, her lover who was trying to kill Batman. Any event, she got all depressed and decided she'd go to prison. Doesn't really make a lot of sense why she would feel that depressed about it, but she, she felt she had to kill she had to kill Valmont, I think his name was. She she killed Valmont, who was gonna kill Batman, and rather than let Bruce Wayne get her a bunch of lawyers to help defend her, she decided that she would rather go to prison. Really doesn't make any sense. So she goes to prison. And now she's in prison while Iko Hasegawa and uh, her, and Taunt Dario are basically taking over the roles of Catwoman and Tomcat in, in Gotham City. So this issue consists of Selena Kyle talking about how she knows how to survive in prison. And she basically orchestrates a, a, um, an interesting scenario where she ends up uh, stealing from the, the the cafeteria in prison by she has Iko Hasegawa and Tomcat essentially steal the items bef uh, that were being delivered, all the food items and the 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 candy, the cigarettes, uh, uh, all the items that were being that get sent to prison to be fed to prisoners and given to prisoners. Uh, those items are stolen before they can be inventoried by the prison. So Iko Hasegawa and Tomcat, they steal all those prison items before they're actually delivered to the prison system. And so before Gotham Correctional Services can inventory all that in uh, all those goods, they're stolen by Iko Hasegawa as Catwoman and Tomcat, and they smuggle these items into Selina with the cat through through one of the cats called Duchess and that this this Duchess cat manages to snuggle all this in meanwhile I, I mean that seems really awfully hard to believe and a little bit silly although Teeny Howard does play with some good ideas here one of them was is that uh, Selena Kyle has been in jail about four or five times in the past it's stated and what she's done Selena has actually inserted 
into certain books in the prison library, items that she can use, like a, like a laser pointer that she uses to communicate with Aiko Hasegawa and Tomcat on the outside, uh, through a window and through various means. And, and it's, it's, it's interesting. And she, she also, uh, so she knows how to survive in prison and she knows when she needs to t allow herself to get, to take a beating from her fellow prisoners and knowing that, in order to survive, you sometimes have to take a beating and you got to know who to get along with and, and, and how to survive. And that's really what she does. And we meet various members of, of uh, well, various uh, number of the prisoners. Uh, uh, Delicias, some of these names are so cool. Delicias, Hoops, Marquise, Foss, Fratawa, Fuller, Kyle, well, obviously, Selena Kyle, but Cool names for some of these uh, prisoners. And Selena Kyle does befriend them by actually smuggling in all these goods. And so that's how she gets in the good books with them. She seems to get in the good books with an uh, uh, inmate by the name of Marquise, who uh, really seems to seems to develop a, a friendship with her. And even at one time was a little bit protective of Selena. And um, yeah, and... Interestingly enough, and again, a little bit of the history of Selena Kyle, uh, it, it's, it shows how, I like how Teeny Howard got into the head of Selena Kyle because you understand that Selena Kyle really is someone that she's accustomed to the prison system. She's actually almost oddly enough, almost comfortable there. She knows how to fit in remarkably well. She knows what she's doing. She's not a victim here. She... Selena Kyle knew she was going in prison. It almost seemed like she, I mean, she pled guilty. She probably could have gotten off with the murder, given the circumstances of the murder of Valmont. She was protecting Batman. But for some reason, she's decided to go to prison, which in a matter still doesn't really make sense to me. But she, she's clearly comfortable in prison. She knows how to survive. She knows what she's doing. And meanwhile, Aiki, uh, Aiko Haisagawa and Tomcat are doing good on the outside, maintaining the illusion that Catwoman is still around to protect Alleytown. And, uh, you know, again, so the whole thing works here. And the issue ends with uh, Ventura from Fremont, Ventura Fremont, who is a new is a new lawyer who believes that Catwoman is innocent and knows that there's more to what went on regarding the death of Valmont than Selena Kyle is letting on. And uh, she she really wants she wants to um, she refuses to let the so-called truth rest. She believes that there's more to the story. She's going to get to the bottom of it. And she basically insists on being Selena's lawyer. So I think that's a good thing because I feel like I'm missing something here. I don't know why Selena Kyle in a fit of almost depression decides to go to prison for something that really she was defending the life of Batman. And so. I, I find it hard to believe that she should be in prison. I don't know why she let herself get uh, sucked into that. But, I, you know, unlike uh, there are some people out there that aren't really enjoying what Teeny Howard's doing with Catwoman. I don't mind Teeny Howard's writing of Catwoman here. I, I don't mind it at all. I think it's entertaining enough. I think it's I think she's she puts it uh, enough thought into the stories that I mean, there is some silliness. I'm not going to lie. I mean, the cat smuggling in. <laughs> Some of the goods, it seems a little bit kind of foolish through the ventilation system of the prison. But a lot of it is through the uh, through the toilet system as well as sewage system. And so a lot of this stuff does, you know, it does seem to possess some degree of uh, eh, 
believability. I mean, I, I stretch if we can if I can stretch my mind that someone can fly. I mean, I suppose it's possible given the uh, prison system in uh, the DC universe that smuggling in some food like Selena Kyle does here with contacts on the outside. It's 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 certainly not above the realm of uh, believability. And I actually I did like the art here. The art by uh, Sam Basri I thought was pretty damn good. The variant covers were actually pretty decent. There's a variant cover of. Um, uh, of Iko Hasegawa as Catwoman and uh, I believe was uh, uh, I was hoping that there was I think maybe it was the last issue there was an alternate cover of Tom Cat himself but in any event there's a nice Sweeney Boo uh, alternate cover as well but that might be a one on 25 but in any event not a bad issue the next issue uh, the next comic we're going to review is Detective Comics issue 1068, and the creative team, written by Ram V, art by Albuquerque and uh, Ivan Reese, colors by uh, Dave Stewart, and inks by Miki. And, uh, you know, this, this, uh, this issue, uh, this detective comics series by Ram V, it started off, I thought, really strong, this idea of this Orgham family coming from another another part of the world to sort of come back to Gotham and reclaim some of the power that they apparently had in Gotham's past uh, involving the land upon which Arkham Asylum is uh, located. And unfortunately, uh, the uh, this narrative, I, I've sort of lost the narrative a little bit. The Detective Comics Annual really took me out of this narrative. I feel a little bit lost here. Um, I, I've read this thing twice I think I get a little bit of a handle on it. Unfortunately, one of the things that really doesn't work is the backup feature. This has a backup that I just, for the life of me, I'm not going to be able to explain to you guys because I just don't, I don't have a clue what's going on. And I, I read it multiple times. But in any event, well, we'll start with the main story itself. Essentially, the Orgham family, uh, they consist of a character, uh, a wolf man, a guy named Tenclaw, a guy named Dark Blood, and um, essentially they're involved. They're the head of the Orgham Orgham family. They're, they're, there's a master Orgham, and these are his minions. Minions, and they they what they're doing is that they're they're recruiting, or they're basically rounding up Gotham's homeless, the homeless people of Gotham City, and they're subjecting them to something called an Asmer, an Asmer, A-Z-M-E-R. And what is the Asmer? I really have no idea. They're tethering them to the Asmer. And the Asmer looks like this green smoke, this green mist that they inhale, and it causes them to be mind-controlled or taken over by the Orgems or by taken over by... Somebody taken over by Dark Blood or Ten Claw or the Wolfman. It's not clear, but it, it's what what is uh, the the only thing we do know is that the when you're infected by the Asmir, we know that it you can defeat an, a person who's possessed by the as this Asmir if you subject him to intense cold. We know that because Doctor or Mister Freeze, uh, Mister Freeze illustrated their weakness to cold in last issue and in this issue batman confronts the wolfman and he defeats he essentially incapacitates wolfman by lacing his his bat suit with uh silver nitrate 
or some sort of silver oxide, some sort of silver formula. And because he's he's literally a, a lycanthrope, uh, which is uh, and so the nano silver is what he has. He's got nanites of you know nano silver injected in his suit, so that when the when the Wolfman touches him, he basically becomes paralyzed. Meanwhile, this dark blood character who's got five or six hands or five or six arms. He's got five arms. And he attacks Batman and he breaks his ribs and he, he paralyzes him somehow by injecting him in something. And then this other character who... Uh, by the name of... I'm not sure... Ten Claw, Wolfman, Dark Blood. I, I I'm not sure who all these characters are. Uh, oh, he calls him Ten Claw, and then Ten Claw wants to infect him with the asthma. But meanwhile, Harvey Dent's watching all this, and now Harvey Dent at the beginning of this story. Just to be clear, Harvey Dent at the beginning of this entire Ramvi's run was essentially trying to basically run for office again, and he was he was trying to. Uh, he was trying to use his power and influence to basically run for office and help the people of Gotham. But what happened is that he was infected by the Asmir. The Orgums basically infected Harvey Dent with the Asmir. But what happened is because Harvey Dent is psychopathic, quite frankly, or mentally ill, it, the Asmir only had an impact on Harvey Dent. It didn't have any control over two-face his his evil side so this is one case where harvey dent's psych psychopathy actually benefited harvey dent it prevented the asmir from having complete control over harvey dent and harvey basically saves batman's life by killing the wolfman and uh there's a huge battle sequence here and harvey dent steps in and manages to shoot the uh wolfman killing him rescuing batman and taking batman to safety and uh, and that's basically what he does. And Two Face takes him to uh, where he ends up meeting with. Uh, I, oh my God! I'm trying to. Uh, I'm trying to remember the. It's um, it's a character that has a bunch of eyes on on his hands. I'm not even sure. Unfortunately, I, uh, Ram V unfortunately doesn't name who the character is, but it was. I think Dan Waters wrote about the wrote this character. It's got a character with a, like a thousand eyes on all his hands and all his uh, face and everything. And I'm not really sure. Not really sure. <clears throat> Harvey Dent is going looking for a Doctor Joy. And in any event, it's not clear to me who. I can't remember the name of this this other villain. Uh, it's the villain isn't named, and that's there is sort of that my frustration with this too there's there's a lot of new players here which i give credit to ram v for maybe trying to introduce some new players but there's a lack of clarity in this narrative that i i wish it was i wish it was a little bit more clear because it feels like a chore to me this is a this feels like a chore this is not an enjoyable read for me i'm doing this because i'm trying to make some sense out of it 
I get the gist of it. Harvey Dent's psychopathic. He's got two sides to his personality. So he can't be completely controlled by the Asmir, which is sort of a mind control mist of some kind, mystical mist, uh, which controls the people, the homeless city of Gotham, because the Orgums want to create an army of homeless people so that they can take over Gotham. That's really it. But now Two-Face is seen through it. He's rescued Batman. And with the help of another Arkham inmate, former Arkham inmate, he's going to, it continues to next issue. All right, there you go. Now, the backup feature, I honestly have no idea what's going on. It shows, it shows uh, the backup is, um, this is really bad. Uh, and this, they've done this every issue so far, but the, the, the stupidity in my mind of having a backup feature and not saying up front on the first page that have the title of the backup on the, Number one page, don't put it on the end. Totally stupid because it's a horrible transition. The artistic change is jarring. It doesn't work and it's terrible. Simon Spurrier, the writer, I don't know what the hell he wrote here. I've read it three times. I don't know what happens. Uh, Danny is the artist. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And I don't really know what happened here. Commissioner Gordon is talking with characters who... I'm not sure who they are. I'm not even sure who they're named. I One character hallucinates and sees Batman as a creature. I don't know why. There's different fonts on the lettering. I don't know why. I don't, I don't understand this. It doesn't make any sense. I'm assuming that this is because one or all of the characters is infected with the Asmir and they're hallucinating. But why would you want the reader to experience the hallucination when none of it makes any sense? But it's this is just terrible. It takes me right out of the story. I don't know what's happening. Uh, there is somewhat of a clue in the main story where apparently there's there's demons in the street. There's a music box uh, dealing with sound. And then there's the Asmir. And somehow this is all connected. Horribly done. Doesn't fit well together at all. I don't know what's happening, and I'm not going to read it. A, reading it a fourth time would just make me more angry. Uh, like seriously, this is this is really this is what I would consider to be a fairly epic um, fail uh, as a backup. I this is this does not work. Don't do this, DC. Don't do it. Don't have the backup supplementing the main story. This is a disaster. This really takes me right out of the story. Because I don't, I'm not interested in these characters. And it's, is, if it's necessary to read the backup, that's another reason why it fails. It doesn't enhance the story. It takes away from it. It causes confusion. And overall, I got to give this issue, I would normally give this issue uh, a, a, maybe a five out of 10. But with the backup, I give it a three. That's how, like, that's how bad this issue is overall. It's serviceable if you just need the main story. If you read the backup, you're gonna be you're gonna it's gonna leave a very bad taste in your mouth. It just doesn't work. And it just the story just doesn't make sense. And the thing is, if you're gonna read this as a trade, will this read better as a trade? Well, it depends how they're gonna pop pack if you're gonna package this as a trade, what are you gonna do with the backup? Are you gonna put the backup as one story in the trade? Okay. But then that's not gonna make any sense because you, you you kind of sort of gotta read the backup with the main story, sort of, kind of, I think. Not that I know what's happening in the backup, but 
This is a painful read, but I'm going to stop talking now. Maybe Jace got more out of it. He did get more out of the backups than before. But I mean, Danny here as an artist, the art just doesn't work. I'm sorry, it just doesn't work. And um, well, it's 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 really unfortunate. But uh, this is uh, this Ram V story as all is very disappointing, and I'm I'm tempted to take it off my pull list, but. I like the style of the cover A's because all the cover A's together look pretty cool. So I'll, I'm getting it. This is a cover buy for me because the story here, Ram V, this is flowery language uh, for the most part that maybe worked for Swamp Thing. But boy, this is, a, this is a pretty big failure for me in terms of a Batman run. And I'll just leave that as that. All right. The next issue, next comic we're going to be reviewing is Punchline, the Gotham Game, issue four. Interestingly enough, it just occurred to me that I don't know if Punchline the Gotham Game is a, is a miniseries or not. I, I would, I really wish this was just, I'm hoping this is just uh, a miniseries because I don't want more than six issues of Punchline. I, I don't think she's, I really, she definitely absolutely hasn't earned it. She needs to be a villain which uh, needs, she needs to be put in her place. She needs to fail epically and be put in her place more than once and she needs to earn her rep uh, as opposed to have it forced. Now I'm happy to report that in this in this particular issue Punchline does in fact fail. She she fails. She does fail in fact uh, uh, she frankly is humiliated by Black Mask, which actually made me feel good because I don't like Punchline. I and and when I say I don't like Punchline, I I thought she had a lot of potential, but that was completely ruined in the Batman Urban in the uh, in the Joker backup uh, the, the, the Joker backup story. It was just, it was terribly done, just horribly done how she got away with all the stuff that happened in Joker. Just was just horribly done. I'm, I'm not a big fan of the whole Royal flush gang as if punchline this, this, this glorified high school dropout that, that supposedly is a genius is certainly going to take over the Royal flush gang. This just doesn't, this just doesn't really work for me. It, it, it doesn't work. She's basically a piece of ass. Uh, that that is you know is a, is a fairly competent hand-to-hand uh, -hand combatant, but even that shouldn't be able to hold her own against even a even a, a common street thug. To be honest, if I'm br being brutally honest, but it is what it is. We're suddenly supposed to believe that she's got the wherewithal and the intelligence to take over the Royal Flush Gang that's been basically involved in mafia-like activities for for literally decades and is is a family of criminals, and she's just going to waltz right in and take it over. It's just ridiculous and. And fortunately, though, here in writers Teeny Howard and Blake Howard, I think did a, a good job in this in this issue. Uh, art by Max Rayner, Louis Guerrero on the colors. In that, you know, punchline is made a fool of here by Black Mask, and I love the best line in the entire comic. And uh, and boy, does does this bitch deserve it? Uh, was when Black Mask basically tells Punchline, I'm sure, uh, one thing's for sure, Punchline, uh, Joker sure knew a good piece of ass when he saw one. I'm sure whatever you saw in him, I can give you, I can give it to you twice as good. And of course, that, I don't know, I, apparently that upsets Punchline when you give her a compliment like that. I, what a bitch, you know? I mean, take a pill and relax. A guy can't tell you that you're, you have a nice ass, you're a nice piece of ass. Come on, Punchline, what's wrong? 
<laughs> in any event, I, I, I loved it uh, because, you know, the, the Black Mask makes a move here and he basically, he attacks Port Royale and he basically is taking out and decimating all of Punch, all the work that Punchline did by trying to take over a warehouse by Ikoas, uh, from Iko Hasagawa, from that crime family, all the work she did and and actually, essentially defeating Catwoman or managing to escape Catwoman in that fiasco that led with Catwoman, that, that resulted in Catwoman killing Valmont uh, because Valmont was going to kill Batman. And the, the villain Amygdala uh, was, uh, was used by Punchline to attack Catwoman. And so basically that freed up Punchline to escape. Now, apparently for whatever reason, uh, you know, what... That, that the void created by that chaos, Black Mask moves in along with the other members of the mafia of it, the uh, Tommaso Mafia, Scarface Mafia, the Ventri Ventriloquist, and Tiger Shark, which are new, basically new new mafiosos that are on the scene, and they're going to fill in the void that that apparently the chaos created by Punchline trying to play the Gotham game, hence the name. We now know how the title to this series. The Gotham game punchline name drops the title of this series in this issue saying she's playing the Gotham game. And unfortunately, Backmask basically says, well, I'm destroying Port Royale. You know, while you're here, you know, they, they you know, Colin, who is Blue, Bluebird's brother, Colin, is actually captured by by uh, his boyfriend and, and taken to his boyfriend, Bluff. Because there's all these poker names, right? Like the Jack of Diamonds, the King of This, blah, blah, blah. And I guess Punchline is supposed to be the Queen or something. I don't know. And Bluff, his boyfriend, is Colin. And Colin is uh, is Bluebird's uh, Harper, Harper Rowe, who is Bluebird. Her brother, Colin Rowe, is boyfriends to this Bluff character. And he's basically kept prisoner. Uh, in the in the basically the basement of Port Royale, which is attacked by Black Mask, so his life is in danger, and so ultimately this uh, this bluff character is going to want to save his boyfriend uh, Colin, who is in in prison in the in, in, by Punchline under under Port Royale next, but that's going to happen next issue because what what happened at the end of this issue is that. The, the the spade character who is I guess the the ace of spades he he's going to you know he was as he's shot and killed by as he's as he's lay dying shot by black masks men at the end he initiates an endgame protocol by uttering the phrase ace is high and so I suspect that that's going to result in the destruction or some sort of defense protocol taking place at Port Royal. And so, uh, you know, again, a, a lot happened here. I like the fact that this is showing punchline is having failed, that this is a battle between the various crime families. And I like that. And it's sort of tying in with Teeny Howard, Teeny Howard, and, and I think it's Bruce Howard. I, uh, the, the, what they're scripting here, there is sort of a, a connection to what's going on in the pages of Catwoman. And so there's some connection there. And this isn't, this isn't bad. 
I'm actually, this is, this is much better than the backups were in the pages of the Joker. So I, I appreciate what Teeny Howard and Bruce Howard are doing. There is a story here. And I like the fact that Punchline is, is failed. I, I appreciate that then she's being humiliated. I'm sure she's going to end up getting one up on Black Mask. Uh, I should also say that Black Mask, there's a new designer for Black Mask. He now has a broken skull, fragments of a skull on top of his Black Mask, as opposed to it being just looking like a black skull. He's got a white skull fragments on top of a black mask. It looks kind of, it looks actually kind of cool. I like it. So kudos to the, uh, kudos to the artist here who, uh, again, you know, uh, have some consistency DC editorial. You know, sometimes you put the credits at the front. Sometimes you put it at the back. How about a little bit of consistency? I mean, pick one. And if you're going to pick one, why not put it at the front? Uh, in any event, um, Max Rayner, artist, great job, my friend. Coloring, uh, colorist uh, by, uh, colors by uh, Luis uh, Guerrera. Very good. Uh, Becca Carey on the letters. You know, it's not bad. I was actually entertained with this issue. I really like Black Mask. And I think that Federico Tommaso is one of the, uh, the head of the Tommaso crime family. I think these are references maybe to some DC artists and, and creators and, and writers. And Arnold Wesker, the ventriloquist, Mr. Scarface, who is the, the dummy that he, that he, the, sort of <laughs> the dummy uh, tiger shark uh, smuggler and black marketeer extraordinaire and then Ronan Sinus of course is black mask and so good we got some good we got some good mafioso uh, uh, storytelling going on here that is uh, frankly it's it's entertaining to me I don't mind it and you know again I, I don't mind what Teeny Howard's doing here it's a little bit of, there's some little nonsense but overall I think I think you'll be entertained. This is far superior to the punchline in the backup of the Joker. All right. What do we got next? All right. What we got next is Blue Beetle Graduation Day, issue three of six. I think it's becoming increasingly clear with Blue Beetle that DC Comics wants Blue Beetle to, the, to be the Power Rangers of the DC Universe, the new Power Rangers, because we get different colors of beetles in this issue. Uh, we get a green beetle. We got the blue beetle. We get the green beetle. There's a purple beetle. We get, I'm sure we're going to get a yellow beetle because we, we have the reach. The reach is this powerful alien race and the reach is broadcasting some sort of, some sort of inf information to the earth. And what exactly is the nature of the broadcast? We're not entirely clear. Uh, neither is Batman. Uh, but Blue Beetle resents the fact that Batman and Superman have decided to take Jamie or Jamie Ray's uh, Reyes off uh, off the table. You know, remember, which kind of reminds me of what Superman did in World's Finest, almost taking David off the playing field and almost taking away his powers before changing his mind. Superman and Batman here, they don't want Jamie. They, they want Jamie as Blue Beetle sort of like. You know, they're afraid that he's going to misuse the scarab power and he's, he's a liability and they want him to basically just, you know, stay off the field. Well, that creates some tension because Blue Beetle and Starfire think that uh, Jamie Reyes should be given a little bit more credit and should be, should be given more responsibility. And we also know that Jamie was attacked, Blue Beetle was attacked by uh, Dynastis, Dynasties, who is, uh, who is a... 
who possesses a scarab of her own, and she is her name real name is Ixio Erazo, and she's got the one of the other Reach scarabs. So it appears is that there's more than one Reach scarab. And one of the scarabs is the a blue scarab that, that Jamie Reyes has, and ex, ex, and or this Xiomara has dynasties. She's got another scarab, which I think is maybe this purple scarab. And we know that there's a green beetle that shows up in this issue, a green beetle, and he's got a green scarab from the Reach. And it's this, and it's basically discovered here that uh, Starfire has a connection because Starfire um, uh, battles with the green beetle and learns that in part that uh, that in the past the Reach was at war with Starfire's homeworld of Tamaran, and that. And that uh, an uneasy alliance was formed and that the Tamaranians rescued uh, some some of the people who made up the Reach were peace-loving uh, members of the Reach. And they these peace-lovers, um, these peace-lovers were called the Horizon. So uh, th- this alien race called the Reach there's a faction of the alien race called of the Reach called the Horizon that are peace lovers, and the Horizon is are sworn enemies of the Reach. And where I think this is going to be headed is that we're going to have the the we're going to have all the heroes, in particular Blue Beetle and the Horizon, battling against these other Green Beetles and Purple Beetles uh, with their own individual names. Uh, who represent the reach and because these um, um, the, the way that the way it seems to be playing out is that these these um, these reach scarabs that they're kind of a warning system because the question that has to be asked is why, why don't the reach simply invade? What are they waiting for? Well, they seem to be sending these scarabs to earth represented by, we got this new green beetle now, and we have this dynasty. She was kind of a purple beetle. And what are they doing? Like, what's the end game here? We do know that this, this, I guess this green beetle, uh, is this, is actually this very attractive, uh, woman when, clad in leather plants and uh, leather plants leather pants and a green military top with uh, short black hair and very clearly uh, she appears at the horizon are coming to earth and uh, starfire of course wants to uh, you know team up with the horizon because the horizon are the peace loving factions of the reach the reach are evil and the reach also have their own scarabs uh, on their side. So it's going to be essentially at this point, it looks like blue beetle versus dynasties, who's sort of a purple beetle. And then you got this other green beetle and there might even be more color beetles. So I expect we're going to have like the glorified power Rangers, but a bunch of different colored beetles. We got different color power rings. We got different color, uh, kryptonite. Now we got different colors of beetles in the DC universe. And so there you have it. And so I think that's where this is heading. This ends with, a. uh, with the purple, I guess this purple-like scarab or purple scarab person looking for Jamie. And so this is clearly building to a head here. Uh, I want to, I'm actually really curious to see where Josh 
Trujillo, the writer, Josh Trujillo, was going with this. The artist is Adriana Gutierrez. I think the art was pretty good here. The Will Quintana on the colors did a really good job. Lucas Catana, letterer, it's pretty good. Um, there's, there's definitely sort of an anime manga feel to the art, but it is very visceral. Uh, the artist... The artist Adrian Gutierrez. Gutierrez does action scenes reasonably well. It's uh, some of the action is is really good. The colors are really bright. You really get a sense of uh, of of what's at stake. And you can even when it shows the horizon, it, you can see like a, a a person, a member of the horizon, where the peace loving aspect of the reach. One's cloud all in red. One's cloud all in orange. One's cloud in purple. One's cloud in black. One's cloud in sort of an off, sort of a little darker purple. So I gotta wonder if those are if they're all representations of different scarabs. And so all this is beautifully artistically rendered. I think it works quite well. I would suggest that if you're fans of Power Rangers, you might want to get to the bot. You might want to pick this up because this is a speculator alert. First appearance of a green scarab, green a green beetle. Uh, first appearance of of a character that might end up being what. Is a glorified purple beetle. I don't know. It's something's going on here in the pages of Blue Beetle, and you want to, you, you might want to pick this up. Incidentally, this comes in an English language version and a uh, Spanish language version as well. So it's uh, it's worth checking out uh, for sure. Now, all right. So the next issue that we have to review is Lazarus Planet. We were once gods. What can I say about this? To be blunt, I'm disappointed with uh, Lazarus Planet tie-ins. I'm I'm not happy with them. I've read uh, I've obviously read this. We were once gods, and I've read the ones that will be coming out in subsequent weeks, onwards to a month from now, next week, the week following, and they're all just anthology stories. That's really all they are. They're one-shot stories that really they're only very sort of peripherally related to the actual storyline of Lazarus Planet. They're, they're all, unfortunately, what they are is they're just stories that deal with uh, individual characters, some of which literally we are introduced to and introduced to, introduced to and they die right away. I'm, I'm baffled by, by some of the choices here, to be quite frank. Uh, and and it's, it's, it's just really disappointing. And... Uh, what, I know last week we was when Trace and I reviewed uh, Lazar's Planet uh, Assault on Krypton. It had nothing to do with Krypton. It had nothing to do with any of that. And the stories were meh at best. But in any event, I'm interested in the actual story of Lazar's Planet that was started in in, El, in Lazar's Planet Alpha, written by Mark Wade. And if you want, I can tell you safely, guys, you can literally avoid all these, every single one of these issues that that are in between. You can literally go from Lazarus Planet Alpha right to Lazarus Planet Beta or Lazarus Planet Omega. That will be the ending story because I guarantee you that Omega will simply summarize what happened with all these issues and tell you what was actually important to know because 95% of it is not important to know at all. Now, having said that, if you are a speculator and you're really big on key appearances, uh, there might be a little bit of a speculator alert that I will... I will let you know about as we go through this, if you, uh, uh, which may or may not, some of these characters, if they get, some of these characters might be interesting in the future. They're not interesting how they're told here. 
And and I, I I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I can't sugarcoat that. So uh, now in the meantime, uh, I'm just. I think we might have a guest joining us. I think Jace might be on the on the hook here. So I'm just going to pause and come back and put him on here. Just give me one moment. All right, guys, uh, we're back. And Jace, uh, Jace, it's so good to have you here. I'm uh, I'm glad you got you managed to finish your work and get get back. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, uh, late everybody. Uh, I'll give my thoughts on the books Rocky's already talked about in just a second, but uh, I think we're going to go through this Lazarus Planet anthology first. All right, sorry guys, we were just cut off a little bit there, uh, and uh, hopefully that won't happen again. But uh, with respect to Lazarus Planet, I, I really like I really like some of the alternate covers. So the good thing is that you're going to have your choice of some pretty cool covers, and yes, and the. Uh, this Lazarus planet, we were once gods. It it starts off uh, whereas last week we reviewed uh, Assault on Krypton, and that moniker Assault on Krypton didn't appear to have anything to do with the actual content. This here starts off telling that this that that Earth is home to humans and superhumans of all walks of life, but it's also home to those beyond the gods of Themyscira, the kingdom of Atlantis, and aliens of immeasurable power and creatures larger than life who uh, over who consider themselves gods, and the, even these gods are not immune to the carnage unleashed by the Lazarus effect. And essentially, the stories told in this particular issue have to do with uh, have to do with precisely that the impact that the Lazarus reign has on the gods and the mythology of the DC universe. And the first story that we uh, we talk about uh, that we read is called Hunger Pains. It, it deals essentially with Aquaman. In particular, and it's script and art by Francis Manipal, letters by Anwar Design, cover by uh, David Marquez and Alandro Sanchez. And this particular issue, uh, I thought I was I was a little disappointed in this one, if only because I, I felt that it, uh, it it starts off where it's just we're just showing a group of people that. I seem to have rescued someone on uh, on 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 in an unknown place. I, I thought maybe it was Amnesty Bay, but it's not identified. It just seems to be there. Seem to be people in a cabin that rescued this person that was sort of washed up on the shore. At first, I thought this person was Aquaman. It was unclear because it looks like Aquaman. He's got long hair. I thought it maybe was Aquaman, but it wasn't. And ultimately, this person ends up waking up. This person has been affected by the Lazarus rain. And then ultimately, out of the blue, Aquaman shows up uh, because this person ends up attacking all these people who are just trying to help him. And Aquaman just shows up and basically rescues this person and then basically tells them that this is this person was from is from the re, is from pardon me is from the trenches and so they those creatures that make up the trench in Aquaman lore think of the first five or six issues of of Jeff Johns Aquaman New Fifty Two arc where he deal talks about the trench those creatures that make up the trench some of those creatures have been transformed by the Lazarus rain into. I guess sort of human hybrids of some kind that are maybe capable now of coming ashore. And that's what happens here. And an Aquaman basically wants to protect and, and feed them and, 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 and help the help them and protect them from maybe being misunderstood by, by humans. And, and that's what really what happens here. And then at the end of this, it basically talks about this is going to, this story is going to be continued in the dawn of DC. And I don't know what that means. I don't know what future comic book we have coming up. I don't, 
I don't recall us having an Aquaman comic book coming out anytime soon, so I don't really know what that means being continued into the dawn of DC. But clearly, the we know that the that the that the trenches, the people who make up the trench, those creatures of the trench, are, are going to now be transformed into more human-like creatures. And I, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't, but I don't know if it's that interesting that it's going to compel me to want to pick up an Aquaman comic if that's what this is re- resulting. And what did you think of this backup or, or this particular story? So, yeah, I mean. You're right. We haven't heard anything about any sort of um, Dawn of C- DC uh, Aquaman title, but I, I, I got to think, you know, based on all these stories, I'll say, you know, continuing in Dawn of DC, the DC's trying to, to plant some seeds to give us an idea of what might be coming. I mean, it was rumored for a long time in the Earth One series that were being put out as hardbacks first and then reprinted as trades that Francis Manipal was going to give us an Aquaman project. Um, both as a writer and an artist. So maybe it's, you know, finally time. Um, Cause when I saw his name on this, I thought, well, I wonder if he's using any of the ideas that he had uh, for that earth one. So certainly interesting to hear that this guy uh, was an ancestor of the current Atlanteans. And I don't know why the Lazarus reign would have brought them back, but it's doing all kinds of weird things. Um, and and th- that's kind of the context of this whole anthology, right? L- Lazarus planet. Um, just to show us, okay, what's happening out there in the world. But DC's trend to put out these one-shots and anthologies that tie into a main event, I've just never really cared for. They've been doing it for a long time, going all the way back to, like, um, I guess, Infinite Crisis was when they first – when you think about – stories before then it was everything would be you know they would do a 12 if it was a big event they do like a 12 issue and it would, you would have space for all of this different kind of stuff you know what's happening with aquaman what's happening with batman what's happening and then they would cross over into their main titles it just doesn't seem they, that they do it that way anymore and I, I don't know if it's to get more product out on the stands or what but i i, I honestly don't care for it i'd rather you know if if you have a regular Aquaman book and you want to cross over Lazarus planet with Aquaman, then you tell that story in, in the Aquaman title. Um, so, I mean, this was okay. Is it memorable? Probably not. Does it hint at uh, something interesting to come? Yeah, perhaps, but where that will show up, you know, we don't know other than the hint that, yeah, to be continued in the dawn of DC. So I guess we'll see. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I agree. Well, after, you know, again, it's, it is a tease and I think it accomplishes what it's supposed to do. And that is introduce potentially new characters and uh, hopefully lead to better stories. Um, the second, the second story in this one deals with Martian Manhunter and I actually enjoyed it a little bit more. It deals with uh, a new character by the name of Raphael Arce, <laughs> uh, kind of an interesting name, Arce. And basically Arce is a lot, he has one thing in common with Martian Manhunter. This new character, Raphael Arce, is actually an empath and he's, he's in Metropolis and he's, he's, he apparently is in the Met- Metropolis hospital and he's actually saving lives. He, he's an empath and he has the ability because of the Lazarus reign to basically absorb the pain and the suffering of others and what he does he wants to he's 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 overwhelmed with a strong desire to help people but Martian Manhunter stumbles upon him because he's biting off too much more than he can chew and uh it's uh 
It's actually quite interesting. I want to, uh, I apologize. You usually start these things off. The, the writer is Dan Waters and the artist is Max Dunbar and Ramon Fujito Jr. does the colors. And what I like about what, uh, what I like about what, uh, Dan Waters does, I think he comes up with sort of a, a creative idea in dealing with Doomsday. And what happens is that this this Raphael character ends up, he finds himself in front of the statue of Superman. And because the most, apparently the most psychological pain and trauma ever experienced by the citizens of Metropolis was when Superman was killed and Doomsday. Doomsday had, in the original iteration of Doomsday, he had the ability to evolve. Every time Doomsday was killed, he he would be he would resurrect himself and come back and you would not be able to kill him in the same manner you killed him before because he would evolve past it. So he would become Doomsday is always increasingly more difficult to kill. And uh, and in this case, there's a psychological component to Doomsday where the, the psychological trauma itself of Doomsday has him uh, coming forward. And Doomsday tries to spread around the metropolis like a psychic virus. And so even death himself can't uh, destroy Doomsday. Even the memory of Doomsday is evolving into a psychic virus. So I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, I don't know what the hell that means, but it seems pretty deadly. And and it infects this Raphael character by literally changing him into sort of like, kind of like a Doomsday-looking psychic, powerful character. And it was through uh, Martian Manhunter, John Jones, helps him uh, basically... Uh, absorb that pain and suffering, but it, it creates so much psychic heat that the carbon in the human body of Raphael Ars, Ars becomes so hot that it, just like when you heat up carbon, it turns into a diamond because it comes under so much pressure. It, he turns into a, a psychic gem. So the, the terror and the horror of Doomsday, along with this Raphael Ars, is now encapsulated in this psychic gem that Martian Manhunter has. And it, it ends with Superman and, and Martian Manhunter sort of looking at the earth and feeling somewhat sad about the sacrifice that Raphael made because he gave his life. Now, you know, again, I'm assuming that this gem, psychic gem, is going to play a role at some point in the future, at a, at a future storyline, just like the uh, the individual, the, the life form from the trench uh, in the Aquaman story is going to play a role. So I thought this was, I thought it was was, was a clever play on the Daredevil scenario, incorporating it into Martian Manhunter and, and the idea of empathy and the power of Doomsday, even as a memory. I thought it was very clever by Dan Waters. And uh, so what do you think of that? Yeah, I thought it was a pretty emotional story, and it showed John jo how much John Jones really has accepted Earth as his adopted home. And then he, you know, he has the uh, conversation with Superman at the end, which set aside the fact that you can't talk in, sp in space. They just maybe they're <laughs> communicating telepathically with Martian Manhunter's powers, but it that indicated you know they still have normal word balloons. So maybe just an oversight there. Well, I guess. Uh, I don't know. John Jones does have a little a bit of a squiggly line on kind of the um, the little arrow, the point of his word balloon. But anyway, be that as it may, I thought it was interesting to contrast the different ways that these um, aliens who have adopted Earth see, see the Earth. You know, John sees it more analytically. Superman, maybe from a more uh, emotional standpoint, but it's a very emotional story. And to see Arse you know, as you said, condensed down into that rock. It was, it was very sad because, you know, here, here's maybe some, some a character that's um, 
showing us some of the best traits of humanity. He gets powers from the Lazarus reign and doesn't for a moment think of himself, but only thinks of how he can use that power to help others, you know, and, and take away their pain. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, seems like we've seen the last of him based on, yeah. <laughs> you know, the fact that he's compressed down into this red crystal or what have you, but maybe not. Who knows? It's comics. Uh, this one doesn't say, you know, to be continued or, or what have you. Um, so it, it does feel like a one and done, but I, I really enjoyed the art as well and the colors. I thought the whole um, visual team did a fantastic job. Um, and, and you're right about Doomsday. Um, you know, just the fact that even as kind of a psychic memory, he's he's so powerful. Just a reminder of how formidable Doomsday is. So, yeah, all in all, a solid story. Um but for me, it really Max Dunbar on the line work and Fajardo Jr. on colors really, uh, really took did their some of their best work. I'll put it that yeah. way. So, yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, up, up next is the Wonder Woman story. Philip Kennedy Johnson is a writer. Jack Herbert is the artist. Alex Guermas on colors and Pat Brosso on letters. This one was interesting. First of all, I'm a huge Jack Herbert fan. Um, I don't know why he doesn't have a regular gig at DC. Maybe he's not fast enough. But I always love his art. The colors by Guermas are fantastic. And again, it's just, I guess, context for how, you know, the the events of Lazarus Planet are affecting the overall DC universe as a whole. This time we're getting a glimpse of how it is affecting uh, Themyscira and to be continued in Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods. So another one of the one shots, how much this might play into or affect Wonder Woman going forward. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Um, I will say uh, I never had really thought or considered uh, PKJ as the writer for Wonder Woman, but based on the strength of this story, I would love to see him give it a shot because uh, I thought this was great. Um, I really love the scene with Theseus and this undead army um, rising up out of the sea covered like in barnacles and swords and what have you from being under the water dead for so long. So I thought that was really cool. Um, seashells in their hair and rotted away um but is it super memorable no because i don't think it really has a chance to really go anywhere you know we just we learn about the threat we see the um amazonians come together to fight against the threat um you know theseus mentions that you know their their, their army is a thousand you know a thousand strong and it's interesting because when the story starts, we see Wonder Woman and uh, and Bia, and they're they're sparring on the shores, and the sun is shining, and you know it's nice, clear skies, and what have you. And it it reminds you that Themyscira, that you know, it's got that pr magical protection. So the rain is are not actually falling on Themyscira, but the waters are still washing the Lazarus rain up onto the island is still being affected. So I thought that was really interesting as well. So a lot of a lot of good things here. Um, but again, in an anthology format, it's kind of tough, um, to really say, you know, how important is this, how much is going to play into any sort of Wonder Woman story going forward. So I, I kind of have mixed feelings about, about this one, but the art, uh, is fantastic. No doubt about that. Color work is great as well. Uh, what do you think? Uh, 
the the art really stands out here. Man, Jock, Jack Herbert is just amazing. It's amazing. Uh, my favorite page is it shows the Amazons uh, led by uh, Queen Nubia as they as they're on their horseback rushing toward the shore to help to help Diana and Bea fight the uh, the army of the undead army of uh, Theseus and the armies and the undead armies of Heracles led by Theseus. And I, I the it really it really feels epic and. I, I really like the way that PKJ tells this story, and I think that it's appropriate because when you think about it, this is a guy that just, I think it's a good fit that PKJ would be writing this Wonder Woman story. By the way, shout out to you. You did a fantastic interview with uh, PKJ, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson. Uh, very informative. I encourage everyone to go go wa- or listen to it. It's, it's really good. And he mentions, uh, you asked him questions about this. And, and this is such, it's a perfect fit for him because he just comes off Superman War World where really, I mean, Superman and War World, that, that War World story is perfect, ideally suited, I think, for Wonder Woman and, and Amazon Warriors, if you ask me. So I, I just think this is a nice, this is a great natural fit for him. Uh, you know, if we're, if you've been following the adventures of Wonder Woman in the pages of Wonder Woman's comic, you, you, we came out of Trial of the Amazons. We know that there's the Well of Souls, uh, where abused women, women who've been killed in the past, come through the Well of Souls. Well, the Well of Souls has been corrupted by the by the Lazarus reign as well. And so now, what comes through the Well of Souls are any soul that has ever been killed by an Amazon comes through the Well of Souls. And and they're also coming through Doom's doorway. And so the doors of Hades are flung open and the, the, the land of the dead of Hades is now empty. And so this is a pretty big deal. So now this is leading into Lazarus' Revenge of the Gods, which is tying into the storyline that the Clunrads are doing, which I have not been big fans of. I've been hard on them, but I'm hoping that maybe inspired by the by the Lazarus reign of the Lazarus planet, that we're going to have some fun here because we don't just get this. This is a story that's going to be continuing, not just in Lazarus planet Revenge of the Gods, which I think is a four issue series, but we're also going to be getting uh, the continuation of the story in Wonder Woman as well. So I'm really looking forward to that as I quickly kiss my daughter goodnight. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I, I'm, I'm, I actually thought this was this was a well scripted story that really teases well what's what what's going to be happening with with the gods, and I just hope that you know I don't want to be cynical, but you know the potential to. I mean, how could, I mean, the gods were already screwed up under Clunrads. I mean, they, they write them as sort of like wanting, Hera wants revenge anyway, because the gods are angry at mankind for not worshipping them. And so they're angry at mankind already. So how how much more perverted and crazy are the gods going to become that, that they're already screwed up? So I'm not really sure. It almost feels like this is almost a redundant plot point. The gods were Wonder Woman's gods are already crazy. She saved them from the graveyard of the gods. They, they're back, and now they through Hera they want revenge. They already we are, they already wanted revenge. That's an established plot point with Clunrads already. So to have Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods sounds redundant to me. But coincidentally, it does seem to tie in well with what they're actually doing with their storyline anyway. So they might as well go with it. So, but uh, yeah. Again, curious to see how this might affect and will Dawn of DC change? Wonder Woman will change creative teams. I guess we'll have to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, The next story, Price of Eternity, deals with Mary Marvel and Malik, who is the White Adam, uh, written by Josie Campbell, art by Caitlin Yarsky, colors by Jordi Belair and Clayton Cowles on the letters. Uh, This one was, I have to admit, I, I had fun with 
the Shazam, the champion of Shazam series, the four issue series written uh, by Josie Campbell uh, with art by Ivan Doc Shainer. Uh, we, we read, we reviewed the fourth and final issue of that series last issue. This sort of continues basically where that left off. Mary Marvel has had a vision of Billy Batson and, and, and members of the Shazam family sort of trapped in the rock of eternity. And she, she's, she, this issue is her going to try to find Black Adam because she needs help. But Black Adam's not anywhere to be found uh, because he's involved in all the machinations going on in his particular series, which I won't need to. Get, I don't need to get into. Suffice to say, she finds Malik. And what I what I want to give props to jo- writer Josie Campbell here for is that I think she captures the voice of Malik quite well. I find Malik more enduring here and less annoying than under the under the scripts of uh, Christopher Priest in the pages of Black Adam. Malik here seems to you know seems to express some shock and dismay at a talking rabbit that that <laughs> that uh, Mary Marvel has and uh, and and basically Mary Marvel very wisely sort of relies it and sort of uh, and sort of uh, guilts Malik into helping her come to the rock of eternity because she's you know she's got to uh, basically she's got to rescue Billy because he's tra- he's he's at the he's trapped in the in the in the ta- in the in the rock of eternity and ultimately they they end up going there, and that's where, for me, the story breaks down a little bit. And I'm going to be a little bit critical because I, um, the whole the whole storyline where Billy gets kind of trapped in the Rock of Eternity and why he gave up the power of Shazam, why he feels he needs to be trapped, why he needs to be trapped in the in the Rock of Eternity. I thought it was because he needed to protect because there was, I don't know, there was all those evil forces, those seven. Whatever those the the chaotic forces that he was trapping in the Rock of Eternity and and he was and and this issue through all the wonkiness of the Lazarus reign for some reason it ends with Billy just up and deciding that instead instead of him being trapped in the Rock of Eternity the Lazarus reign the impact it has on him is that he can now trap the Rock of Eternity within himself I think. Which seems really wonky to me, but I mean, at least it gets Billy out of the Rock of Eternity. So now Billy himself, it ends with him being the embodiment of the Rock of Eternity. And somehow he can be Shazam and Mary Marvel can still be Mary Marvel. I'm not sure who's the... So who's the champion of Shazam now? Who's the number un, numero uno one? Are they all equal? I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure exactly kind of what went on here. It's kind of wonky, but... I'm just glad we got Shazam, Mary Marvel, and Malik working together. I thought the dialogue was well. I think they worked well together. I thought Josie uh, Campbell scripted some good interaction and some good dialogue. Plot-wise, look, this this goes all the way back to Future State. The wonkiness of we're still Josie Campbell. I feel for her because there's only so much lipstick you can put on the pig of trying to explain the whole Billy Batson in the in the in the Rock of Eternity nonsense and and then Mary Marvel, what she did in Planet in Lazarus Planet Alpha and then coming here to the Rock of Eternity again. There's some wonkiness here, but there's also fun to be had here. 
And this is uh, Josie Campbell. I, I, I like the voice that she has to the characters. And I feel that she's done her homework. I give her credit because I thought she captured Malik's voice nice. And in a way that he was actually less annoying than he was under Christopher Priest. And I, I actually kind of like the way this ended because it, it, it brings us Billy Batson and Mary Marvel and Malik all back working together. I like these as a team. And I, I'm curious to see where this goes. So what do you think of this? Oh, sorry, you're on mute. Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, I, I agree with what you're saying wholeheartedly. Um, it's an interesting twist. I don't know where, you, you know, Josie's supposed to go, honestly, when we talk about, okay, well, Billy's trapped in the, the rock of eternity. He's he's tied to it. You know, I've, I've talked to a writer. You, know, you mentioned my interview with Philip Kennedy Johnson and talked to him right after he took over um, Action Comics from uh, Brian Michael Bendis. And it's like, you don't immediately want to come in and just undo what the previous writers done before for a few reasons. First of all, you don't want to disrespect what they've done. Plus, you know, you could have some readers that feel betrayed. Well, why should I read this one? As soon as the next writer comes in, they're just going to completely throw everything out. Um, so I, so I get it. Um, it does open up some possible interesting storylines going forward with, you know, what can be done. Uh, we saw the wizard Shazam, you know, get angry at the end, sort of betrayed, you know, why is, is this doing that? Why do I, you know, bother to share my power, blah, 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 you know, typical maniacal things. And it's interesting because if you think back to when um, Shazam was first created, much simpler time, golden age, and it was clear that the wizard Shazam was kind of this benevolent old guy. And, you know, he, he was very much on the side of angels, so to speak. And, here we have a, a wizard Shazam who's seemingly much more <laughs> maniacal and, uh, you know, maybe doesn't have the, the best interests of Billy and the rest of the Shazam family at, at heart. So it, it, it's kind of interesting. What what can play out? What are the consequences of the Rock of Eternity being inside um, yeah. Billy Batson now? So yeah, it, well, it's interesting. We, we, yeah, we know one of the consequences. The wizard has lost the connection to the Rock of Eternity because it's inside right. Billy Batson now, and he now is exclaiming that they're not worthy. And I, I think of I think that the Lazarus Reign made the wizard evil because he was never against Billy or the Marvel family in the past that I'm aware of. But I maybe I stand to be corrected on that. I it's odd to me, but yeah, yeah, we'll have to wait. We'll have to wait and see exactly you know, what, what the long-term consequences of that are, because uh, again, we're just, we're not sure at this point, but it, again, it's interesting to speculate. Um, I, I think this, you know, it, it's an interesting take and uh, you know, we'll, we're just going to have to wait and see basically how this all plays out in, in the long run. Um, but getting Billy back, getting him out of being trapped in, you know, the rock of eternity in whatever way it's done, I think is a step in the right direction because you know, whether Josie Campbell did a, a good job in her Champion of Shazam series, and I think she did a fantastic job, that's kind of not the point, right? Like when, when you're a casual reader and you pick up a book that says Shazam on it, you expect to get Billy Batson. You expect to have some, you know, Captain Marvel is, is Billy Batson. And so when that's not there, you know, you can understand why people might feel a little cheated, I guess you'd say. So uh, in the long run, I think it's it's good that it uh that it played out this way so um where this might continue again we don't know 
they haven't said that there's going to be any sort of um, Shazam title going forward. Um, but it, it feels like um, there might be a Josie Campbell, you know, follow up to the four issue that we've had so far. You know, other than saying, you know, more more Lazarus Planet Revenge of the Gods fodder, I guess, I guess you'd say. Um, so we'll have to wait and see how that all plays out. Uh, I thought the art was solid. Thought the color work was done well. Also, you're right about um, about Malik and uh, him being a little more uh, not so inscrutable, I guess. <laughs> but that's in, inscrutable is a good word to describe Christopher Priest's style of writing. So uh, yeah. So all in all. <laughs> You're right. Do you need to read this to read Lazarus Planet? No. Um, but does it add context? Yeah, perhaps. Perhaps right. it does. We'll have to wait and see. Uh, and there is a Dawn of DC checklist, which I think is interesting because uh, it's so um, it's so sparse, right? We know in March, DC's not putting out only three books. In February, the, the only listed Superman number one. In March, we've got Adventures of Superman, John Kent 1, Unstoppable Doom Patrol 1, Harley Quinn 28. Like, we know there's much, much more than that. Yeah. So more to come when they get around to announcing things, which, man, it feels like it's it's overdue at this point. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, then the next issue comic we're reviewing is the Human Target number 11. So what do you think of this, Chase? Yeah. Penultimate issue of Human Target, uh, Tom King, writer, Fantastic artwork. This has been the most beautiful book on stands for like the past year since it started, basically. Greg Smallwood, almost a charcoal style, a throwback style. Uh, we've talked about how uh, almost this mod, you know, 60s feel to the book. Letters by Clayton Cowles. Smallwood's doing his own colors. It's 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 just beautiful. There's a charm to it. It's so interesting. Uh, and in this particular issue, uh, there, I won't say there's a lot of dialogue in terms of, okay, there's more dialogue than you would see in uh, in previous issues, but there are pages where you have kind of all the scripting on one side and then almost like um, illustrations to go along with those on, on the other. It's a very emotional issue with Ice finally kind of losing her patience with Christopher Chance, uh, clearly in love with him. He's in love with her, but she just, you know, the guilt, right? Like all along, she's been the one that poisoned Lex Luthor uh, or tried to poison Lex and in, in doing so poisoned Christopher Chance. Initially, her her thought was to stay close to him to, so that he wouldn't learn to, to, that she, along with Fire and um, some other Justice Leaguers, uh, really it was her and Fire that conspired to kill Luthor. But unbeknownst to others, um, they helped. Uh, you know, Booster got certain things that needed for the poison guy kind of made up uh, an excuse that he had done it um, to kind of throw chance off the uh, off the, the trail so uh, again very emotional issue I I keep I keep having to remind myself when I read this it's black label it's not in continuity uh, Christopher Nance is not really dead but or not really gonna die but you know this is black label anything can happen it's out of continuity and I, I find myself hoping for a happy ending. Uh, which might be the most <laughs> foolish thing I've ever, you know, hoped for in my life based on the fact it's black label and it's Tom King, right? There's no, there's no happy ending on the horizon, but man, I just love, I love these two together. I love ice and Christopher chance together. And 
I love that Tom King gave us this, this kind of confrontation that he, that he gave us, right? Like all along, Christopher Chance has been falling in love with her, but all along he never stopped suspecting that she might be, he was her first like initial thought. Like she was the one that did it, right? She had the, the best motive, um, the best means and you know, he finds himself falling in love with her, but in the back of his mind, he never dismissed her as a suspect. And that's ultimately what helps him, you know, solve the, the mystery of his own death. Um, but despite that, it, it's so dichotomous, right? She's the one that's responsible for his death, and yet he loves her with you know everything that he is uh, because of who she is, and yeah, that that guilt that she feels, you know, she didn't want to get caught, obviously, and she wanted to have justice and revenge, and she certainly never meant to kill Christopher Chance, but at the same time. Um, you know, does she want to get away with it so she can have a chance again to, to actually kill Luther? Does she want to get away with it just because it's human nature? Like there's so much there. There's so much layer of, uh, of emotion and with the gorgeous art, uh, just, you know, another, another fantastic installment to the series. I, I really, I mean, where do you go from here with 12? You know what? I mean, it's just so, so emotional. I feel like it almost could have ended right here, but uh, I guess we'll see what, King has in store with store for us with the final issue, but I thought this was fantastic as it has been throughout. So what were your thoughts? Um, I, I just love this. Uh, you know, <laughs> one of the, uh, I, I know, uh, and there, there's another reviewer out there who, whose reviews I respect, uh, who, uh, uh, who, who's doesn't have a high opinion of this series. And, and, uh, his viewpoint was that, well, we already know what happened at the end of issue of the last issue. And it's true. We did at the end of the last issue, we have all the information as to know what happened. All ice does in this issue in their conversation is just tell us what we already know, but just spells it out. And ultimately it, it just sort of spells it out. And th there's such a tragedy to it because ice, there's a, there's a wonderful scene or one of my, my favorite sequences is there's a, there's a scene where ice says to chase, I'm not sweet and nice. And she says, basically, F you. Like, she she did plan to kill Lex. And goddamn, she planned to kill Lex. And then there's another innocent person who ends up getting the poison. And it's this Christopher Chance. And her and, and, and Fire and, and ultimately with Guy Gardner's help, they, 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 they want to, they get embroiled in the investigation that Chris Chance is doing. But they know that he's got less than 12 days to live. So all they got to do is ride out the 12 days and he's going to be dead anyway. But damn it. Ice falls in love <laughs> and she finally meets the love of her life. And the, the, the sad irony is that she's responsible for the, for the love of her life dying. And ironically enough, she meets the love of her life because she, she crossed the line to, to, for revenge. And it's like, and, and she's so angry at herself and she wants to be punished and she wants to be punished. And she, she's so frustrated with, with the human target. Christopher Chance won't get angry with her because he understands her. He understands her so well and he loves her, but he understands where she's coming from. And he's not, he's, he's not, he doesn't, he doesn't have a hateful bone in his body. He's accepting his fate and he's prepared not to have ice, you know, be subjected to justice or the court system or anything like that. He's prepared to die. And as he says to her, he goes, I won't miss you. I'll just be gone. He's prepared to do that. I mean, this is a love story. And so for those, for those that think, well, this, the mystery is, was done at the issue 10, you're kind of missing the point of the series. It's a love story. 
And that's what this art is conveying. And, and just the amazing, just those moments here uh, where, you know, the silent moments. And again, Greg Smallwood of, of tears flowing from Ice's face as, as she's laying on her head on the chest of, of Chris and, you know, the island of ice as they're floating in the ocean. They're, they've got they got 24 hours left before he, he dies and they're having these moments and it just works so well. I can't wait for this to be in a hardcover. I really hope every one of uh, Tom King's hardcovers so far that I've gotten. They're, they're regular size hardcovers. All of them have been that way. The Mr. Miracle, the, the Rorschach, the, uh, the, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, 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 Adam Strange or Strange Adventures. And, uh, even the, uh, his, uh, uh, I, there's another one, uh, the one with the, the army. Anyways, it doesn't matter. I want this to be oversized. I want this hardcover to be an oversized hardcover. I would love that. But no, I, I love this. This is, uh, this is, I mean, look, the mystery's over, guys. Yeah, the mystery's over. But if, if you're with it this long, I can't believe you wouldn't want to buy these last two issues because this is, he's going to die. And if he's going to somehow survive, I'd like to know how. But I suspect he's, <laughs> I suspect this is, it's Tom King, like you said. You never know what's going to happen. So yeah, great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah, I mean, if they were going to heal him, that would have happened. I mean, he went to the best minds of of the. It kind of reminds me of when um, the original Captain Marvel died, right? Like, the best yeah. minds work on it. There's just no way to save him. That's not the point of this series. Um, the happy ending is not the point. Um, yeah, it's almost the antithesis of the point. So, uh, well, you know, I said I was going to go back after Lazarus Planet. And I totally forgot. I'm going to go back right now, real fast, uh, and and talk about the previous books that you talked about before I got here. Uh, okay. Batman, One Bad Day, Catwoman from G. Willow Wilson. I thought it was okay. Uh, I certainly like the voice that G. Willow Wilson gives to Catwoman. Uh, and the art by Jamie McKelvey is just absolutely gorgeous. Like, oh man, what I wouldn't give for a, a Catwoman monthly series with Jamie McKelvey doing the art. That would be just fantastic. Uh, but, and again, love the voice that G. Willow Wilson gives Catwoman. My problem with the series is, so this is supposed to be, you know, by the editorial prompt or whatever, like the the quintessential books, stories of these characters, right? Like Killing Joke is for the Joker. This doesn't feel like that for, for Catwoman. It feels sort of incomplete or it feels like even Catwoman herself isn't 100% sure who she herself is. So, you know, if that's the case, it's like, well, then what's the point? You know what I mean? Like why, you know, what, what's the, what's the point of the story? Is, is, is it that Catwoman has, has changed so many times over the years? I, I don't know. And it's like, I still, despite all the different Catwoman stories, and maybe it's just because none of them have really spoken to me. I still feel like decades later, 80 years of Catwoman, we still haven't gotten the, you know, character defining story of, of Catwoman, you know, after 80 years, maybe that's just a personal thing for me. But other than that, other than it not feeling like, okay, I'm going to read this story and know exactly who Catwoman is. Um, it, the story itself is, is really fantastic and enjoyable. Uh, Tim Drake, Robin five. I really enjoyed um, this Moriarty who seems like a good nemesis for Tim Drake. Really interesting. Uh, I could have done without seeing Tim Drake vomit, to be honest with you. I did. <laughs> I, I, did I did really want the big bad 
Yeah, vomiting on the shark. <laughs> you should have uh, heard me. You should have heard me rant about that. I, that's, that's, I'm pretty sure that's the first time I've ever seen a superhero win the day by puking on on a bad guy. Uh, that's hilarious. Yeah, run out of, runs out of acid, has to get it from the stomach. Whatever. <laughs> I, I will. I will say though, as interesting as this Moriarty character as a nemesis for Tim Drake seems, I did you want it to be Bernard? I actually wanted the bad guy to just be Bernard. Bernard has yeah. been playing Tim Drake all this time yeah. from the first time he came back into his life and, you know, they had romantic yeah, relationship or whatever all along it was Bernard, but no, it wasn't. I, I wanted that though. That would have been really interesting. Uh, and I'll just say the Riley Rosmo art. What is it about Rosmo's art that as it's almost like as he settles into mm-hmm. a character, his yeah. art, um, uh, gets almost cleaner you know yeah he did share the artistic chores he shared the art on this issue uh he did half the issue was by uh i can't remember the name of the guy i think it was uh ortiz it was ortiz uh i think is the uh, the other artist because yeah even the pages that that he did oh yeah ricardo lopez ortiz yeah but even the early pages uh, are much cleaner so pretty interesting there um, DC Horror presents Sergeant Rock. I don't really have much to add. I'm sure you did a great job, but wh- just the fun, just fun. Zombie Hitler and Easy Company, <laughs> you know, blowing shit up and and killing zombies. Just just a lot of fun as it's been throughout. Uh, Harley Quinn, really interesting. I think the art is the best thing about the issue, um, mm. but I think this is a story that's going to pay off in the end with what Stephanie Phillips is setting up. Um, but you know, kudos gets a little meta with Harley. Like, why do I need to be the hero? I'm not, you know. She's never been that. So getting a little meta talking about those of us that prefer her as a villain. So that was a a solid issue. Um, Sandman universe, dead boy detectives again, solid. I don't have a lot of history with these characters, so I'm not that invested, but I am a fan of porn sack Pichichote. So um, interesting what's going on there. And I'm, I'm definitely invested to see how it all plays out. Best issue of Catwoman we've had so far. Um, And really interesting how, Tinny Howard gets to tie it in with the punchline series that's going on. And I'll talk about that in a second, but love seeing her in prison. I thought the art was absolutely fantastic. Um, yeah. Far and away my favorite. It's almost like it's going to sound a little dichotomous. It's almost like uh, if you take Selena, you know, out of Gotham city, throw her in, in jail where she doesn't have all the other kind of baggage or, or plot lines or whatever, whatever. And you just give Tinny Howard a chance to just focus on Selena to, to maybe find her voice a little better that it, it, it's more true. It's not, um, you know, it's not drowned out by some of the other things that were, that are kind of cluttering up the page. You know, we talked before yeah. when she was in Europe and what have you, the, how the pacing is, is the hardest thing for Tinny to seem to get right. Cause there's so much story and it's jumping from one thing to another. And sometimes it feels choppy. And there's all these, you know, she brought in so many characters right from the start. So eliminating that and just giving us a good focused story with her in uh, in jail is is really working for me. And the Sami Basri art again, just just fantastic. So uh, hopefully that continues. Detective Comics for me was meh. Um, you know, I'm having a real hard time with this story based on how out of continuity it feels. Jim Gordon's back as commissioner apparently. Um, you know, I've talked in the past about the, the problems I have with retconning and putting this Asmir and this Orgum family into the uh, origins of Gotham city. It's just not working for me. And so far this entire story has felt more like a two phase story with Batman as a supporting character rather than a Batman story with two phases supporting character. I don't know if you feel the same way, but 
um, yeah. getting kind of tired of Two-Face at this point. And then the backup story, um, man, I, I go, I run hot and cold on this art from Danny. Sometimes it works for me. It's not working here. Yeah, it's um, not for me. I, I, I'm following this, this idea of this kid who apparently now we learn is from the 1880s. We've had various stories of him from Simon Spurrier. But at the end of the day, it's just not that interesting. It's just not that interesting. I will say again, as I have a thousand times, it feels like now, stop with the backups, knock a buck off the price, and just give us the main story. Yeah. Even if the main story is not. I, I, I got to say, I was, uh, my comment was that I, I think I get, I, I understand the gist and I explain the gist in detail of, of the gist of the, of the Two-Face side of the story. Uh, because I think that there's an interesting side there. I, I like the idea that Two-Face has two sides and it's his duality of personality and his his psychopathy that almost gives him an edge to overcome the effects of the Asmir that is, are affecting the Gotham homeless. And so that gives him the edge and he ultimately ends up killing the Wolfman that's uh, got one up on Batman. And I thought that was interesting enough. But the backup here and the, the way the music box and some of these other things, the, the backup here, I don't, I read it three times and I I don't understand it. I'm not sure who the characters are. I don't understand exactly really what's going on. I don't understand the different lettering. I don't know how that's relevant. I, I don't, I, so I was, I, I did actually say that I, I, I wish you were here maybe to explain it to me if you understood it better, but I, I really didn't understand what, what Simon Spurrier was trying to say with this backup and how it really relates to the full story. And, and the, it's such an artistic, I thought, I thought it was a jarring artistic difference and it just it 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 took me out of the main story when it should have been clarifying it you know because some a backup should add clarification to the main story sort of like the toy man backup did with the in the batman story with respect to the gun that that was shot at batman to put him into another alternate earth of some kind the backup actually provided some information that was helpful i find these backups actually confuse me because I don't know, I and and that's, and and it frustrates me. And and you know, again, I'll fall on my sword I, if I don't understand it. And other other readers do that. That's fine. But I find myself jealous of other readers that understand what the hell's going on in this backup. Because I don't. <laughs> well, you never understood. That's the thing. Like the previous yeah. backup was a was a two face backup, but the backup before that was these two same characters, Jim Gordon and this kid that we found out was from the 1880s, and you had a hard time with that. So this is a yeah. continuation of that with another backup interrupting it. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. You're right about the art being jarringly different. And th this is probably my least favorite Yvonne Reese art I've ever seen. Like it doesn't even look like his art because the ink is so heavy handed and trying to make it dark and moody to capture this gothic feel of what Rom V is trying to do. So, I mean, I'm a fan of Rom V, don't get me wrong. <clears throat> but what he's doing here is just, it's just not working for me. I don't care that much about Two-Face. I don't want this Orgum family that we've never heard of before to be so intrinsically tied to Gotham because, well, then why haven't we heard of them before? Like it just, it just doesn't make sense at the end of the day. So anyway, um, I mentioned uh, punchline before best issue of punchline we've had so far. Uh, what wasn't working for me in Catwoman with all, you know, all the different characters that I just talked about with Tinny Howard kind of making it tough for herself to give everybody enough um, space on the screen actually works really well for punchline You're bringing in um all these different uh members of the the you know classic members of gotham crime family from black mask and ventriloquist and um uh, this new tiger shark character and what have you w maybe it's because it takes 
real estate away on the page from punchline. I don't have to have as much punchline to, to make an interesting story. Maybe that's why it works for me, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, yeah. Far and away the best issue of the series that we've had so far. So um, I guess we'll see how it all you know plays out in the long run. But for, for me so far, it's without question, <clears throat> excuse me, best issue uh, that we've had so far in the art solid too. Blue Beetle Graduation Day, introducing another Beetle to the DCU. I feel like, um, are we heading down the Power Rangers path a little bit? That's kind of. <laughs> I, I, I did a whole diatribe about talking about Power Rangers, and yeah, because I, I figure there's at least five. We're going to get at least five because if you look at the if you look at the members of the Horizon, that uh, they show a scene from the Horizon, who are the sort of like the peacekeepers, the peace faction of the Reach that uh, eventually that that the Tamaranians sort of like helped rescue from the reach because the Tamaranians were at war with the reach for a long time. And then a, a peaceful faction of the reach called the horizon are sworn enemies of the reach. And when it showed pictures of them, they look like there was an orange one, a purple one, a green one. And so, but yet the reach also have their own scarabs. And so I'm wondering, are we going to end up with all the scarabs getting together like power Rangers at the end of the day to win the day? And then one's going to betray the team. And, you know, we, we see this, you know, we see it playing out and I actually don't mind it to be honest, DC, the DC universe. I mean, it's ideally suited. It actually makes a lot of sense to have that with blue beetle with the scarab. And I, and I think that uh writer, uh, Joshua uh, Trujillo, I think he's doing a reasonably good job. You know, I'm not a big fan of his of the artistic of how Starfire is rendered in the comic artistically uh, by uh, by the artist. Uh, I can't remember the name of the artist, but um, but all in all, I'm actually I find myself enjoying Blue Beetle. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Surprisingly enough, it's it's solid. Um, I think, yeah, what Josh Josh Trujillo um, is doing a fantastic job melding that idea of keeping it fun and fresh with who Jaime Reyes is, but introducing some, some new ideas. So, you know, if, if you're a Power Ranger fan, you might dig it. If you're not, maybe less so, but at the end of the day, it is showcasing uh, how much of a hero Jaime Reyes is. And I love that Ted Court stood up for him to Batman. That, that was great as well. Um, but you know, how it all plays out in the long run, uh, we're going to have to wait and see, but it's clear that uh, Trujillo has a, a real passion for this this character and yeah, very dynamic art, very bright, bright colors, which, you know, again, maybe that's what helps feed into the, the power ranger feel. Uh, but Adrian Gutierrez on art is, is fantastic. And yeah, who this guy is at the end with the white hair and the purple hood, who he might be, uh, seems like nemesis seems like he yeah. up to no good. We'll have to wait and see. So, uh, all right. Up next Gotham Knights, uh, gilded city. Number four from Evan Narcisse writer, Abel's the artist. John is the colorist. And Steve Wands on letters. We get uh, quite a bit of Vandal Savage here, which is interesting. Uh, more of the Runaway, this 1880s Batman. This is the first time in reading this series that I felt like I'm reading a video game comic, uh, and it, it sort of helped, right? Because you know I just complained about inserting the Orgums into the history of Gotham City. Well, now we're introducing this Runaway into the history of Gotham City, and Batman feels very derivative of him. It makes Batman feel less interesting, less original. Um, but I, you know, throw that out. This is video game continuity, different universe, different part of the multiverse, you know, set everything aside. I don't play video games, so I don't know how much this ties into the story of, you know, the narrative for Gilded City. 
Um, but if this is the story, I imagine it's got to be fun to kind of play your way through. So other than that, I, this is probably a story that's not really going to resonate with me that I'm going to remember long term, but it's okay. And uh, I think the art is really fantastic. I think <laughs> Abel's art is especially good on the flashback. I almost find myself uh, disappointed when I turn the page and it comes to modern time. <laughs> we get like Batman and the Bat Family. Very I much so. About the runaway and yeah. the and the 1880s. That's more fun. And the coloring has kind of almost like a sepia tone. I, I'm just enjoying that more. Like forget it. Just give me a story of the runaway and forget the Batman part. Uh, and I think I'd like it even more. But but all in all, it's a, it's a solid story. It's you know it's technically a well put together comic. The art is very solid. It's paced really well. So um, again, I think if you're a fan of the video game, you'll probably get a lot out of this and really enjoy it. So you know I will give DC credit for trying to do some. Um, you know, cross promotion and bring in some new readers, maybe that uh, love to play video games, but don't necessarily read monthly comics, but might pick this up just because they love the Gilded City video game so much. So what were your thoughts? Uh, the, there's no question from a storytelling point of view, the past story of Gotham in 1847 with the, with the, with the Batman character called Runaway, who's a black character whose job is to, he runs away from bondage, cruelty, and injustice as he tells Vandal Savage. And the plot line is actually, it's actually, it, it, it flows so well in the past. Basically, Vandal Savage was a caveman who gained immortality when a meteor hit the ground and the shard of the meteor gave, bestowed upon Randall, Vandal Savage immortality. And it's the very shards from that meteorite that the Court of Owls are using to try to cheat death in 1847 Gotham City that flows with them to present-day Gotham, which has to do with the 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 golden uh, the golden iris virus, uh, which is in the modern-day coal mines that the Batman family is venturing into at the end of the issue. And I have to say, though, I'm like you, the... I, I want to give credit to Ivan Narcy, writer Ivan Narcisse, uh, for scri scripting, doing very well in the scripting of the past, but he's done less of a good job drawing the connections from the past to the present. They're not really there. It's not really clear yet. This is the first issue, by the way, where Runaway actually explains who he is. I mean, this is the this is the uh, fourth issue, and we only got. I think we don't. We didn't even know who Runaway was. His name was indicated on the cover of issue two. No clue in, in issue one. Cover three, they mention his name uh, once. Finally, in issue four, here we we get Runaway explaining who he is and what have you, and he uses his persona as his as as uh, another. Uh, as a citizen of Gotham to help investigate the Court of Owls for Vandal Savager. It's a very, it's a decently written story, but I'm a, I agree with you 100%. I hated every time it jumped forward to the modern day Gotham. I don't care about the modern day adventure. And yet, ironically enough, what's odd is I don't play the video game either, but I'm thinking to myself, the people that play the video game, maybe they don't want, maybe they don't like the flashbacks to the past, but maybe, does the video game have this runaway Batman character? Does the video game have flashbacks? If they, I would almost hope it does because from a storytelling point of view, if, video, if the best video games have the best stories, I'm thinking that this runaway story, it's infinitely more exciting and interesting than the story we're giving in present day Gotham, which frankly is a little bit convoluted in my mind is it doesn't flow very well i find myself wanting to go back in the past in particular these characters portia dauphin and vivian foxworthy who are in fact a, a same-sex couple both black and both both uh, abolitionists this is an interesting story they're not just former slaves but they're 
Actually, they're also LGBTQ back in 1847 Gotham. There's, there's all kinds of layers to the story in Gotham's past, and none of that really exists in the present story being told. So it's interesting. Yeah, I, again, I, I think that um, you have to set aside that it's Gotham City, right? Um, because again, like I said, it can be problematic when you start thinking about, well, it's so derivative, right? Like how is Batman original if there's runaway character existed, you know, way back when. So uh, anyway, moving on to Action Comics number 1051, which DC is billing as the, the first of the dawn of DC issues, according to the checklist and a few of the monthly issues. So th there's three stories. Um, and when I spoke with Philip Kenny Johnson, he, he kind of made it clear he didn't want... Didn't want it to seem like this was an anthology, but you know they're kind of co-features. They all sort of, um, you know, full, full amount of story, I guess you'd say. Uh, but the main story is called Speeding Bullets Part One from Philip Kennedy Johnson. Art is by Rafa Sandoval. Colors by Matt Herms. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, yeah, I encourage you all to go listen to my conversation with Philip. He dives deep into this issue and what the Superman family means for him. But uh, harkens back to the Triangle Era. That's what. That's the feel. That's why I really loved it. The Rafa Sandoval art was fantastic. Lex is the puppet master again, pulling strings, which to me suits Lex Luthor better than this idea of him throwing on the suit and being on the front lines. I think back to the John Byrne era where he was a, a businessman that, you know, he was always three, four or five steps removed and you could never prove anything. That's, I think, when Lex is the most menacing and the most interesting. And uh, what Philip Kenny Johnson teased about Metallo, which I won't spoil it here, go listen to the interview, uh, is just fantastic i can't wait to see this leveled up metallo so I, i'm i'm all in this is far and away my favorite issue of philip kennedy johnson well i shouldn't say far and away because last issue was fantastic as well with the idea of superman and his powers leveled up and and philip talked a lot about that in our conversation as well and i yeah this idea of a leveled up superman i i can't i can't wait to see what he can do um and if uh, and we and we said I said this during the interview to Philip like if we have a leveled up Superman who's more powerful than maybe he's ever been post post crisis and Metallo is an actual threat to him God how much has Metallo leveled up as well so yeah uh, I love this first story uh, I thought it was fantastic what what were your thoughts on it uh, I Philip Kennedy Johnson's done a really good job here because I got to be honest I'm very cynical about the Superman family. I, I really don't like, I think part of me, I guess I'm old school and which is, and it's really odd. You know, I got, I got like what I consider to be very high grade copies of all the Superman family issues back from the early eighties. And I love them. They're, they're, they're comics. I got, I got my reader copies when I was young and I also bought copies that I just, I preserved and bagged and boarded and and uh back when there was no bags and boards i created my own and anyways i got stories i can tell about that but in any event i love the superman family but i'm i had some trepidation here about this particular version of the superman family and i'm happy to report that this first issue i'm blown away by the sandoval art absolutely fantastic and I I really like the way it showed the people, you know, there's there's an explosion and and it looks like there's a crisis and all the people looking up into the sky and all of a sudden we get this gorgeous image rendered by artist Raphael Sandoval and it, it, it's reminiscent of Kingdom Come where Superman's holding two criminals. It, it looks like that epic scene where Superman finally returns after 10 years. Well, this is Superman returning to Metropolis after War World or at least that's the feel you get. Looks epic, but this time he's got the whole Superman family behind him. 
And it's different than Kingdom Come, of course, because it's not just Superman. It's everyone. It's all the members of the Superman family. And it looks really good. And the, the real, where the moments really shine here is that I was, I was worried that uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson w- would have a hard time finding, capturing the voices of all the members of the Superman family. And I'm happy to, to, to report, in, at least in my opinion, that he nails the voices. He does just an amazing job. And in particular, what stood out for me was uh, John Kent having some trepidation. You can tell already there's tension there because you got Lois and Clark adopting the the, the Faelosian orphans from War World. And uh, their names, I always butcher their names. I think their names are ridiculous, to be honest. But Othul Ra and Ethel Rue or whatever the hell their names are. Stupid names for the orphans. I mean, that was that's my one complaint. I mean, call them, I don't know, call them I don't know, call them Lisa and Ted or Fred or something, but don't call them Ultra Rue and whatever. I don't, I don't really like that, but it is what it is. But it doesn't matter. They're adopted by Lois and Clark, and John Kent's not sure how he feels about it. So clearly they're right. They're going to have that conversation where, because they lost that childhood. They lost John Kent's childhood, and John Kent lost his parents for those years. He was raised by Ultraman, and the trauma that he experienced, that that's going to be dealt with in adventures of, uh, uh, in, 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 in another series uh, written by uh, Tom Taylor. Uh, it's it's very well done. And Superman uh, wanting, looking forward to, uh, e- even the interplay with Lex Luthor. The, uh, the, the, they're building the, uh, the uh, steel, Natasha Irons and uh, John Henry Irons. They're building a steelworks factory, a steelworks tower that's larger than Lex's tower. I mean, you got to think they're crazy. Why would they want to build a tower larger than Lex Luthor's tower? Because Lex, because you know he's going to want to destroy it. And that's exactly what Lex Luthor tries to do through Metallo in the issue. And Metallo's characterization, we know that Lex Luthor is, is, is we know he's blackmailing Metallo. We know that from previous issues and hints and how that's going to interplay. Uh, and we know that, uh, we, we know that, quite frankly, Things are headed to a, a a huge. It's going to culminate in something here. Metallo is he's got some insane power levels in this issue, and and you know it ends with you know the the Superman family is there, but it looks like Metallo can hold his own against all of them. So, but we know we have a super powered Superman is more powerful now than he's ever been. So, in order to be a in order to have somebody who can match with Superman, Metallo must have some pretty insane power levels. So I'm really curious to see how PKJ, uh, the type of power he's given Metallo in future issues. But I, I was, I quite enjoyed this first, this first story. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad I mentioned that to Philip, uh, about, you know, them saying, Oh, you know, the new tallest building in Metropolis. That's just, that's just poking the bear, man. That's just going <laughs> to piss yeah. off. And sure yeah. enough, uh, the second story is uh, a Lois and Clark story from Dan Jurgens. Lee Weeks on the art. Elizabeth Brightweiler does Brightweiser does the colors. Rob Lee on letters. Uh, if you enjoyed the Lois and Clark series from Dan Jurgens before, you're going to love this. Picks up. Um, I won't say right where that left off, but it definitely has that same feel. And just a reminder that Lee Weeks is one of the best artists that's working in comics. Like his storytelling is fantastic. Um, I love this era of, of you know, post-crisis Superman, and I love that Dan Jurgens is back giving us a Superman story, and um, I'm real curious to see where it goes long-term and who this new character that shows up at the end might be, this female character. Absolutely no clue who she might be. So uh, what do you think of it? 
Uh, well, I, I, I enjoyed it well enough. I, I will give Dan Jurgens some credit here. Um, but first I want to admit to some confusion. The, uh, I, what a curious time period to go back to because when Superman was wearing the black tights with the silver, he, this was still technically, this was the Superman from Convergence and the new super, the new 52 Superman was still flying around and was still alive. And then the new 52 Superman died. And then there, we had the Superman reborn series where this Superman sort of became just sort of became part of the continuity. It was kind of wonky, the continuity. So I'm a little bit, you know, uh, again, that's just me being really picky. I frankly don't care because I just want to focus on the stories and that's where we're getting. But then he's incorporating his Doom, his 30th anniversary Doomsday story, which, uh, which is good. It, it, it adds some interesting element because we had Doombreaker. There was a character by the name of Lloyd Creighton who ended up becoming transformed into Doombreaker by a shard of Doomsday's bones. And this issue, uh, this issue involves uh, young John Kent stealing the shard of, of the bone of Doomsday, the bones of Doomsday, because he wants to protect the world from it, because he feels he wants to, he's like his dad, he, he's young and he's, he doesn't realize how dangerous it is, but Batman, you know, unbeknownst to Superman or even Batman, it's John Kent, young John Kent that stole the, the Doomsday shard of the, of the bone of Doomsday. And just uh, before any John Kent can do anything with it, he sees a, a meteor or a, a rocket crash outside the field of their home. It's odd that John Kent sees the crash, but his father doesn't. Uh, Lois and Clark don't. But uh, this mysterious woman comes out and she talks a foreign language, but there's a translation matrix that comes into effect. And it's really, you know, it's interesting. So, uh, I mean, I got the next issue teases that when death comes calling. And so it's like, wow, I'm, I'm really really curious is who this this character is when i when i see when i hear the phrase death comes calling i think of the silver banshee you know so is this like a, a silver banshee character uh because you know every time she talks she can her voice kills so anyways i'm really curious to see what dan jurgens does with it but i quite enjoyed it yeah uh, you're right about the whole uh, continuity the rebirth era of superman it gets really kind of wonky best to not think about it yeah all i can <laughs> All I can think and, and wonder about this story is, is this a way for, is this a way for DC to, to give fans of, uh, of young John Kent, you know, a chance to see him again? Yeah. Uh, Cause obviously there's quite a bit of, of young, young John Kent here. So, um, you know, why, why go back to this era? Well, may, maybe that's all it is. Maybe it's just a chance for readers to get some young John Kent. Um, I mean, there's, there's, wor there's worse things than getting young John Kent. Um, so, uh, so the final story is from Leah Williams. Uh, it's the power girl story. Marguerite Bennett gives us some, uh, or Marguerite Savage rather gives us some beautiful art and colors, uh, letters by Becca Carey. This very much comes out of the, um, the, uh, Krypton, Kryptonian or Krypton, um, uh, tie-in that we had that we talked about last week for uh, Lazarus Planet. Um, the idea of Power Girl with mental powers, I'm kind of eh about. Um, wasn't a huge fan of her new costume either. Um, but I, I do enjoy the voice that uh, that Leia Williams gives to Power Girl. And 
uh, I'm learning to like this new Omen character. She seems pretty interesting. And also there was no hints at any sort of romantic feelings between the two, which I, <laughs> yeah. which I was happy You're about. Right. Yeah. You, you, you mentioned something <laughs> about it. I'm like, did I miss that again? Uh, but yeah, maybe that's just my, happy. that's my fanboy period fantasy that I got to get under control. Who knows? Yeah. So, yeah, so I thought uh, it's an interesting start. Like, is this how it's going to be for every uh, story where it's basically going to be Kara um, or Karen, rather, Karen Star, and um, and this Omen character, Power Girl and Omen, and each week somebody new comes in to get psychic therapy, this, this time being Beast Boy. Um, and then the other thing I couldn't help but think was uh, about the Tim Sheridan run and aren't what happened to Cyborg and Beast Boy being in one body, right? Are we just <laughs> sweeping that under the rug? And t- I'm fine. If that's what we're doing, sweeping it under the rug and forgetting all about it, and they're actually separate again, and let's just pretend that didn't happen. I'm totally fine because I hated it to begin with. But every time I see Beast Boy, I'm like, is that really Beast Boy? <laughs> like, he got shot in the face. So how did the Cyborg part of it, you know, come into play? Was it Cyborg got shot in the face? But whatever. Won't think about it too much. But, but anyway, uh, I mean – Love the art. The art is gorgeous, beautiful, the color work and the line work. Um, just, yeah, love it. So what do you think of this? Uh, well, I'm not a fan of uh, Power Girl having telepathy. I, I really don't like it. I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't find it makes Karen Star any more interesting. And why would you team Power Girl up with another telepath? If we, if we want, if you need a telepath in the DC universe, why don't you go with the arson character, the arse character that we got uh, with Martian Manhunter? We he seemed to have some sort of empathic abilities that were sort of telepath, you know, related in terms of mind powers. I thought that was more interesting. Why not go with Omen? Why not have like I of all the character to mess with? Why mess with Power Girl? And plus, I'm also curious: does she, does she actually does she even have her powers anymore? I don't even know. Is she just a telepath, or does she still have her superpowers? I I, I don't. The first that she still had her superpowers, but I could be wrong. Yeah, but uh, in in any event, I, I thought it was really odd. I I you know what she does in this issue. You know, she kind of cures Beast Boy. Beast Boy has a genetic coding problem and he's connected to the red and his mind's all screwed up because he was shot in the head by Deathstroke and Power Girl somehow goes into his mind and resets his 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 coding, his genetic coding sequence. I mean, I know Karen Starr is in fact a genius. She's very intelligent. So I'm not saying she's not capable of, of, of doing that, but it just seems a very odd sort of power set for Power Girl to have to both have telepathy and then suddenly I guess she's a scientist as well. And uh, it just seemed really odd to me. I, I, I want to basically, uh, one of the, the variant covers, I want to show one of the variant covers of Action Comics 1051. It's a variant cover, uh, the the artist I think is Davica, S. Davita or Davica. Anyways, it shows Power Girl in a dystopian future, hitchhiking on the road. She looks, she's wearing sunglasses. She's hitching a ride. It looks awesome. And I actually thought, because I saw the solicits for this, you know, like over a month, like a month ago. And I thought to myself, that's awesome. Whatever Power Girl is going to be doing in action comics, it's going to be involve, involve her doing this, maybe going across country, maybe lost her power, something cool. Uh, you can imagine my disappointment when, Basically, she's just relegated to basically just going inside the, the, the minds of 
Beast Boy or various people. Is this her job now? She's going to be like a, a glorified psychologist? I mean, is this who you think of when you think of Power Girl? I want to be clear. Leigh Williams here, writer Leigh Williams, she captures the voice of Karen, of Karen Starr good enough. But is this Karen Starr or is this is this Kara Zarel? Leigh Williams did an interview with uh, CBR. And she states that uh, she actually asked her editors, Leigh Williams, to her credit, actually read all the read the different iterations of Power Girl. So it because she did that, I know that I know that she's familiar with the with the her Kryptonian origins. She's the Earth Two Supergirl. We know that she's she's familiar with the Atlantean origin, the different iterations of Power Girl. And she had a lot of questions because she admitted to being confused. She asked her editor a various question. Well, what about this or what about that? And the editors basically told Lee Williams, "Well, just do whatever you want. What do you think the answer is?" And so it bothers me a little bit that editorial. On the one hand, I get editorial saying to Lee Williams. Do what you want because, you know, you know, whatever. Think outside the box. We're going to give you the creative freedom to do what you want. On the other hand, it's like, do you really had not have any idea as an editor, as, as DC moving forward, what you want out of Power Girl? Because the whole telepathy thing seems really, really out of left field. And it's just not something. I mean, who thinks of, when you think of Power Girl, I think of Amanda uh I think of Amanda Connor, Jimmy Palmiotti. Power Girl is aggressive. She generally tends to, she's aggressive first, thinks afterwards. And here she is on the opening page, meditating in a metaphysical space with Omen. Like, this is a calm Karen Starr. This isn't Karen Starr to me. Again, the dialogue's fine and all good. The art's beautiful. But this isn't Power Girl to me. It's just, it's not Power Girl. So am I, in, do I want this Power Girl iteration to continue? No. Do I like it? No. Is it beautifully drawn? Yes. I just, you know, I'm not saying that there can't be some decent stories out of it, but why not? If you want to tell a telepath story, well then tell a story about Omen. Why, why, why make Karen Starr a telepath? I just find it, it's just, it's a, it's just a miss for me. And I, you know, I don't mind the costume change. We still get her uh, cleavage, which is important. She's a sexual character. You can't take away the, 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 the sexual, the, the sexual provocativeness of the character. It's part of who she is. And so I'm glad that we still have elements of that here, uh, despite the minimized uh, breast size by uh, artist uh, Marguerite Savage. It's, she's still a pretty damn sexy character. So overall, I got mixed feelings. Yeah, well, I would say that, uh, I mean, it's only one issue so far. We did have, obviously, the, the uh, part of the story in the, the previous anthology last week for Lazarus Planet. But it is only one issue so far. How long she'll have these psychic powers remains to be seen. Was it just for the duration of the Lazarus Planet event? So, I, you know, just because she has those powers now doesn't mean she's always going to have them. So we'll have to wait and see how it all in uh, in the long run. Um, so I give, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt for now. Um, and we'll see how it, how it plays out, but yeah, it, uh, it's an interesting start. I'll, I'll say that, uh, and Sergio Davila or Davia, I think it's Davila cause it's only one of right. is the one that did that cover. And yeah, you're right. I mean, would I prefer, you know, a dystopian story of power girl? <laughs> um, maybe, maybe, maybe that would be better. I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, this is interesting. I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. So we'll see. Uh, all right. On to the last book we're going to talk about in detail, uh, the justice society issue number two from writer Jeff Johns. We have Mikhail Yanin, Jerry Ordway and Scott Collins on art, Jordi Belair and John Kalis are the colorist and Rob Lee on letters. 
uh, man, so much has happened in the story, especially been reading all along with Flashpoint Beyond and the various uh, one shots and tie-ins and uh, previous things John's done since DC Rebirth. So a lot to unpack here. I'm curious uh, as to your thoughts. Uh, well, look, we know that we know that uh, per Degaton, the classic JSA villain has been traveling through time and killing all the various iterate all the iterations of the of Doctor Fate. Every generation of Doctor Fate, from Kent Nielsen all the way to Khalid Nasser, all the way to the Doctor Fate of the 30th century, has essentially been killed by Per Dagaton, and he's wiping out all the JSA members. Uh, uh, with, with respect to all the timelines. And there's only one little wrinkle that was thrown into things, and that was Catwoman, because uh, Catwoman in, in, the, in the future, in, in, in 2039 or whatever, uh, basically ends up throwing, saving uh, her daughter, uh, Helena Wayne, saving her life by throwing her the globe, that infamous globe that Batman had in, in, in Flashpoint that was part of Flashpoint Beyond and, and the globe that allows for whoever touches it to cross, to, to time travel and potentially perhaps even cross, go to alternate Earths. And uh, when, Cal, when Selena Kyle threw, when, threw the globe to Helena, it, she threw it just in time, just as Per Degaton was going to kill... Uh, Helena killed the Huntress. She was transported back to 1940 JSA, and she was rendered unconscious. Uh, the JSA, being the good people that they are, cared for her. Upon waking up, Helena meets the members of the Justice Society, uh, in its, and it's in 1940. And she basically tells them, you know, she basically gives them the rundown. She says, I'm a member of the Justice Society in the future. My team was murdered. I was told her that Dr. Fate could help me save them. Because her mother told her, you, you know, talk to Dr. Fate. And, but when the Dr. Fate of 1940, Kent Nelson reads her mind, he gets transported one year in the future to 1941, where he meets his future sidekick, Salem. Now, that's a new sidekick for even diehard JSA fans. And so Salem talks to him. So he's a little bit disorientated by that experience. He ends up, uh, Mr. Miracle shows up with Solomon Grundy. Dr. Fake gets then transported back through some machinations back to 1940. And then we get another time jump. So we're, we're getting some time jumps here uh, where... In, Time jumps ten years from from our present from our present where where uh, Helena is basically with her mother Selena and she's complaining about seeing that stranger who we believe that redheaded stranger is Per Degaton who ends up ultimately killing them and then it shows Catwoman once again uh, where she's just about to attack Per Degaton where she knowingly is sacrificing her life uh, but she manages to save her daughter and she's got no problem sacrificing her life as long as she brings uh, it gets her daughter to safety and that's exactly what happens and Helena uh, gets sent all the way uh, into uh, into the future this time and to present day where she ends up meeting members of the Justice League Dark, I guess, or I'm assuming Justice League Dark, but Dead Man, uh, Khalid Nasser, Dr. Fate, and Bibbo, Bibbo the Detective Chimp. And so so th there's, I don't know if there's a lot of explanations. This is still just set up as to Helena is all over time, literally all over time. There's a lot of time jumps here. It's a little bit wonky. 
I my criticism is that Jeff Jones is usually I would say a little bit better than this. I'm excited because I'm familiar with DC Universe and I'm I'm along for this these time jumps in the ride and I'm not confused. But I question whether or not newer readers who just came on board at JSA number one, I wonder if maybe they're fully on board if they're not as familiar with DC lore as maybe some of us are. But I really enjoyed it and I think the art is um the art is uh Fantastic, and the art by uh, uh, Mikel Janine is excellent. Jordi Belair on the color colors, on um, you know, really good job here. But uh, what do you think? Yeah, I want to be clear that the so these different eras are um, are illustrated by different artists. So you have oh. Mikel Janine doing sort of the, the Justice Society portions, right. and then you know when you jump to Helena as a kid, it's Scott Collins, and then Jerry Ordway's doing the you know uh, can when he. That's yeah, right. pulled into the the you know jumps to 1941 as opposed to the 1940 that uh, Mikhail is doing. So um, I'm really enjoying this too. I think it's really fun and interesting. Um, it, can it be a? I, can, I don't want to say convoluted, but I suppose that's the right word. Just because there's a lot of layers and complexity here, right? And if you have deep love and deep knowledge of DC, you're going to get more out than, uh, than just you know, jumping right in. But that being said, you know, these are the kind of stories that I read when I was a kid with a ton of characters and you jump in midstream and there's action going on and you, you can catch on, you can realize what's going on. Um, I, I'm still like, okay, we finally get a name for the redheaded guy. It is per Degaton as we speculated, but then I was told it wasn't per Degaton by somebody. So, I mean, he doesn't, he's much thinner than per Degaton. Per Degaton to me was always more of a physical character than kind of a puppet master or an intelligent, you know, character that had all kinds of machinations and plans going on. Yeah. So is it really per Degaton? Maybe it's just a different version of per Degaton. I guess we'll wait and see, but uh, I, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. Um, I can't wait to see where it goes. I love the voice he's giving this version of uh, Helena Wayne, Huntress. So yeah, um, yeah, it's Jeff John's at his best in my mind. So yeah. Oh, good story. Uh, all right. Well, I think I think we talked about everything, right? There weren't any other. Yeah, that's uh, that covered it all. We got it all. Yeah, there weren't any other uh, single issues that were like out of continuity or whatever. Sometimes we don't always talk about that stuff. So those are all the books, 14, uh, 14 titles out this week. Um, again, apologies that I was uh, a little bit late. There are some, um, <clears throat> excuse me, there are some collections out from DC this week as well. So let me give you guys a rundown on those real fast. In addition to these single issues that we talked about, we've got uh, change over to just DC. Uh, we have the Black Adam, the Justice Files trade paperback with uh, a rock cover of all things. I'm not sure that how you know relevant that is. Um, there's also a Dark Knight's Metal Omnibus hardcover, uh, a couple different versions of that. One has a black and white pencil cover. One has the regular cover. And then there's an Earth Prime trade paperback, which reprints and collects all those one-shots, those Earth Prime one-shots, which were basically DC stories that were set in the world of the DC TV shows. So uh, we didn't read any of that, and Rocky and I, are, neither one of us are really big fans of the CW TV shows. So, uh, But if you're curious, if you're a fan of those and you, you want to get them all collected in a trade, um, they're out there. They're out there this week for you to uh, to check out. So. Uh, well, that's going to do it for yeah. this episode. Well, your, um, no, uh, your pick of the week. I want to know your uh, oh pick my. of the week. 
Uh, I'm going to say uh, my pick of the week. For my, my pick of the week, I'm going to be going with, uh, uh, oh, pardon me, that's the wrong one. My pick of the week is Action Comics, which is... No, 1051. Yes, 1051. Even though I didn't like the uh, the Power Girls story, uh, the strength of PKJ and Dan Jurgens uh, overcame that for me. And the Power Girl story wasn't, you know, it, it just wasn't my cup of tea. It wasn't badly written or anything like that. I'm just not a fan of the particular, of the telepathy angle. So I'm going to go with Action Comics. Yeah, so that probably would have been my pick, but I was, I, I was about to say, why don't you go first? Because... If you pick that, then it opens me up to pick something else. And there's definitely some worthy titles, right? Like, obviously, we we both really enjoyed Human Target this week. Um, but man, you know, I think I think I have to go with Justice Society. Um, as much as good as Catwoman was, um, I thought Robin was really solid. Punchline was really good. Yeah, but I'm gonna go with uh, yeah. God, Human Target was so good. But now. I'm going to go with Justice Society. Uh, it's just, it's really intriguing what Jeff Johns is building. And uh, he's got me, he's got me really interested. Like uh, if I could only keep reading one of these books, it would be action comics. But if I can read two, the second one would be Justice Society. So yeah, that's my, that's my pick. Um, anything you got coming up that you want to tease for uh, the listeners? Uh, well, I just did. Uh, I just did a review of uh, Area Fifty One, a Helix Project issue five, and I want to give a shout out to Trevor uh, Lankevich, uh, his uh, his Kickstarter there for issues uh, for the final issue six, and and collecting all you can get all six issues for one complete story of Area Fifty One, a Helix Project. It's a really good story. It, I know it'll look, it'll read very good as a trade, and and reading all the issues from front to back, it it uh, it, it it's one. It's one pretty darn good story, and so definitely check out that. Uh, and I got check out my review of of Area Fifty One Helix Project, and it'll take you links to the Kickstarter and uh, support support that project. And uh, and probably the rest of the week I'm tied up in uh, trials and what have you, so I, I won't probably won't be doing anything at least until the weekend. Uh, so, but uh, what about yourself? <clears throat> Yeah, I just had that fantastic interview that we've referenced multiple times with Philip Kennedy Johnson. I encourage everybody to check that out. I should have some more interviews coming up um, later this week, just a matter of um, getting them scheduled. So uh, as always, be sure that you head over to YouTube and subscribe to Rocky's channel, Comic Space Boom! Exclamation point. Um, you know what to do from there. Subscribe, ring the notification bell, uh, like this video, leave comments. We get some really interesting uh, and cool conversations going there sometimes. So you can, uh, take part in that. Um, conversely, if you are always check us out on YouTube and you want to be sure not to miss any of the audio only content that we do for the comic source, uh, just go to wherever you get your podcasts, do a search for the comic source and, uh, yeah, we'll go from there. So. All right. And until next time, comic boom out and bye from the comic source. Yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource, 
Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.